0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Your mind, it is the
2: center
3: of your life. It is everything you hear, everything you see, everything you
0: feel. It is everything you are. How would you know if someone stole
3: your mind?
2: Arrest that woman!
3: Quade, catch. Get ready
4: for a surprise
3: We can't let him run around, he knows too much They've got your bug, I get a lock There! And the bug's in your
1: skull Ah!
3: Take this thing out of the case and stick it up your nose
1: Don't worry, it's self-guiding Got him I lost him Welcome
3: to Mars.
1: You got a lot of nerve showing your face around here. Look who's talking.
4: They erased your identity and implanted a new one.
0: If I'm not me, who the hell am I? (laughs) He's got a hologram!
4: Welcome to Johnny Cab. Drive! Where can I take you tonight? (laughs) Please fasten your seatbelt. I want Quaid delivered alive for reimplantation.
0: That's for making me come to Mars.
4: You wouldn't hurt me. After all,
0: we're married.
3: Consider that a divorce.
1: hope you enjoyed the ride!
0: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. I'm just here for the ego trip. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Jedediah Ayers.
2: we will see you at the party.
0: We're kicking off back-to-back discussions of Philip K. Dick adaptations with a look at 1990s Total Recall. Directed by Paul Verhoeven, the film spent years in turnaround until Arnold Schwarzenegger was attached and got this thing made. We've actually been talking about Total Recall since the very first episode of The Projection Booth, way back when we talked to Richard Rush, who was one of the first directors attached to the project. It's the story of identity, sanity, freedom fighting, and more. Of course, we're going to be getting spoilers galore on this episode, so please be warned. Rob, when was the first time you saw Total Recall, and what did you think? I was 12
1: when this came out, so 1990, I was 12, so that, do the math, you can figure out how old I am. I believe I either saw it in the theater or when it was on VHS, I can't remember which, but I do remember seeing it not too long after it came out, if that was the case, and at the time, I... Didn't really know what I was looking at. It definitely had a tone to it and a style to it that I'm going to talk a little bit more about later that I, I thought was really interesting. And the whole sort of question of what's reality and what's memory or dream, you know, this may be where, uh, now that I think of it, where I came to like the films of, uh uh-oh, take a drink, uh, Louis Bunuel, because there's a lot of that you don't know if you're in reality or in a dream kind of logic. And I think this may have been the first place that I remember kind of seeing something like that when I was a kid. So in the years since, I've seen it over and over again um, many times. It's one of my favorites of Verhoeven's American films. Obviously, is uh, the best one for me is always RoboCop. I always go back to that one. But uh, there's always something about a Paul Verhoeven film, even if it's a failure, quote unquote, it's still more interesting than half
0: the other stuff that's out there. How about you, Jedediah? I first
2: saw it on video. It was new to video. Uh, I, of course, was aware of it. I was very interested in movies, but I was not allowed to see movies, and so my... My buddy and I, uh, we would have been probably 14 when it came out and, you know, maybe 15 when I saw it on video. But, uh, yeah, we used to go up to this video store that we, his parents had a, um a membership at and we found that they would rent us movies, uh, you know, R-rated movies and, and things like that and wouldn't, wouldn't give us any shit about it. So we'd go up there and we'd rent a movie and then uh, come back to his place, and he wasn't really allowed to watch movies either, but we would watch, we would take turns, we'd borrow his father's camcorder, and we would make our own movies, but we would pretend we were making a movie, and uh, we would actually load the movies we rented into the camcorder and watch him, you know, take turns watching him through the little viewfinder.
0: Oh my God, that tiny little lens?
2: Yeah, oh yeah. Wow. That's how we did it. That's how Dad did it.
0: That's how America does it, and it's worked out pretty well so far.
2: Or sometimes we would uh, sneak out of his room in the middle of the night if I stayed over, and we would, you know, down in their like family room, we'd watch movies really, really quietly. And every time we heard a creak, we'd turn it off and, you know, hide under uh, the furniture. But um, anyway, so I saw I saw Total Recall then, and it it blew me away. I loved it. I gotta say, it's it's not the First, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie I saw, I th- think Running Man might have been the first. And I loved Running Man and I really liked this one, but I got to say, I was not big on Arnold at the time. Um, I was not interested in Commando or Rod Deal or the sort of more, you know, quote unquote, realistic ones he was doing. I thought he was a vehicle for fantasy. In science fiction, I just couldn't believe him in anything that was supposed to be reality. He was so outrageous-looking, and, and of course, the way he talked and everything like that. So I thought these sort of heightened reality projects were especially good for him. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, to this day, Total Recall is probably my favorite Arnold movie. It's definitely one of my favorite uh, Verhoevens. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's it's fantastic.
0: If memory serves, I was somewhere down near Gibraltar. Rob will maybe appreciate this. I was down near Gibraltar, and we were having an employee screening of this in Lincoln Park. And I managed to book my way from Gibraltar to Lincoln Park in, in an insane amount of time in order to catch this film. I think I came in slightly late, maybe after the initial dream sequence but caught this one uh theatrically at the employee screening and fell in love with it and have enjoyed this movie ever since i think i own it on almost every format that it's come out on which is kind of sad to say like i was watching the dvd for uh this time and uh it was nice. The special feature that was on the the disc was actually a metal tin that was shaped like the planet Mars. And uh the first extra that was on that disc was actually directed by our friend uh, Jeffrey Schwartz, who's been on the show before. And I think that may be where he got his uh Verhoeven connection. And now he's making a documentary about uh showgirls. So, you know, everything comes around eventually. Yeah, I kind of agree with you, Jed, as far as the whole idea of Arnold – being such a larger-than-life character, and that was uh, initially a problem for this movie. Even years and years afterwards, I would hear people complain about it isn't a shock when Douglas Quaid ends up being a superhero, or a secret agent in this case, because he's built like something that is not human. He is not that typical guy. But then it's interesting, you take that and you flip it, and you put Colin Farrell in the role, and... You know, even though Colin Farrell is much more handsome than I am, that's for sure, it doesn't work. And I think it works better with Arnold and that they tailored the script better to fit his personality than they did with Colin Farrell. It just feels like it could have been any old schlub in that role, but then you put somebody handsome in there and it doesn't necessarily work. It's not Again, it's not a surprise that this guy's a secret agent because he looks like uh, he could be the next James Bond.
2: I like Colin Farrell as a performer a lot, but I don't know that he's got a distinct sort of personality, like you think, oh, that's a Colin Farrell role, or that's a, I mean, Arnold came with everything here, you know, he got the one-liners, he got the, he got everything, I mean, it's a very distinctly Philip K. Dick movie, it's a very distinctly Paul Verhoeven movie, and it's a very distinctly Arnold Schwarzenegger movie at the same time, I think that's, that's an accomplishment.
1: I mean, I understand that they try to um, make him a You know, bulky and they give him a bulky job. So he's out, you know, working the jackhammer and all that stuff on a construction site. And, you know, it's not like he's pushing papers across a desk. Like, you know, I don't think we would have bought that.
0: Yeah. Like Mr. Incredible at the beginning of The Incredibles or something, working an insurance job. I think that they did a good job with that. And I think Arnold gives one of his best performances of his early career in this role. He can actually play. The pathos that it takes to realize that you're not necessarily yourself. That little look that he gives after he goes to the recall place and he ends up shooting Harry and these other guys that are trying to take him away. That look that he gets on his face when he looks down at the gun, like, I did that? Like, he, he's kind of surprised. He's, he's like Urkel at that point.
1: I do that?
0: It is really smart that we begin this movie with a dream sequence, that we have Arnold waking up, that we almost have him dying in that dream sequence, which I didn't get to see until I finally watched this on VHS. And then the whole idea of that we see so much of his world and we see so much of the world overall through screens. We're introduced to a lot of people, characters, through screens. You know, you think about the first time we see Cohagen. He's on a television screen that's in the Quaid apartment. The first time we see Richter, he's on a screen. We see that guy's face who gives him the briefcase on a screen. We even see Hauser on a screen. And we just get this whole idea of screen after screen after screen. And then even when he gets introduced, quote unquote, properly to uh, Melina, it's also on that screen at the recall place.
1: That, to me, is where on watching it over the last few times, it really starts to feel like like when we did Starship Troopers, we talked about how Starship Troopers plays kind of in the RoboCop world. There's certain things about uh, how it's structured and, and the use of uh, commercials and TV and, and all of that stuff that feels like aspects of RoboCop. And I think it's kind of the same here as well, that Verhoeven's using a lot of the same techniques of media in order to give you that stuff. And, and there is satirical elements with, obviously, some of the um, commercials that are in here as well.
0: Would you like to ski Antarctica?
2: Yeah.
0: But you're snowed under
4: with work? Do you dream of a vacation at the bottom of the ocean? But you can't float the bill? Have you always wanted to climb the mountains of Mars? But now you're over the hill? Then come to Recall Incorporated, where you can buy the memory of your ideal vacation cheaper, safer, and better than the real thing. So don't let life pass you by. Call Recall for the memory of a lifetime. For the memory of a
3: lifetime Recall, Recall, Recall
2: it also reminded me uh, of the the opening of Brazil, where you get the uh, you know all those television screens and the the window, and they're talking about it's all the the terrorist activity, and that's that's all that's uh, getting airtime, and and the talk of of the terrorists uh, Quado and his terrorists on Mars uh, doing uh, slow in progress. It, it reminded me a lot of Brazil watching it this time. Like oh
4: yeah, not a new
1: technique. And also looking at it through knowing more about uh, Philip K. Dick now than I did originally, that opening on Mars looks like the cover of a 1950s pulp novel. It, It feels to me like it's staged very much like it could have been a still shot that's put on a cheap paperback
0: this coming out in 1990, we were so steeped in the news about things like the Nicaraguans and the Salvadorians and all of these conflicts that were happening in Central America. And it was the whole idea of, are these quote unquote rebels or are they freedom fighters? And when we were on earth, we're hearing about the rebels. And I don't think that Molina and her group necessarily call themselves freedom fighters, but that's essentially what they are. Once we get up to Mars and learn what the real situation is. And I also think that it's very clever having Cohagen be the name of our main villain here. And with Verhoeven being Dutch, he obviously is coming from a background where he is familiar with what the Boers did in or were still doing at this point down in South Africa and the way that they were exploiting the workers in South Africa to mine diamonds the same way that the Cohagen is exploiting the Martians to or the people, the Earth people who are living on Mars or the now the, the Mars newbies, new people um, to mine the Turbinium. So I think that he definitely was playing with that as well.
1: And I also get the feeling, and I think this is probably where this, it it lives in the world of RoboCop, is that having Ronnie Cox as Cohagen almost seems like him playing Dick Jones again. There's a lot of that same kind of just rotter, I'm in charge, I'll step on anyone, you know, that he's just so great at.
2: I absolutely agree that it, it feels like the RoboCop world, and, and because of those, those themes that, uh, that Mike was talking about, the... Uh, kind of a fear of capitalism movie capitalism run amok is the real threat to the (laughs) to the planet to the civilization this time it's you know he's trying to charge people for air when it could be free and then robocop he's of course privatizing police and 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 funding the 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 criminal gangs that are stirring up the, the fear of uh of rampant crime uh to to get himself business so it's um, I'd be curious I, I haven't read any scripts. I understand there were many, many, many script versions of it. But I'm curious if any of that changed, particularly with with Verhoeven being attached uh to you know, I mean that that seems like a a very Verhoven uh Verhoeven kind of theme and, and something he would be interested in.
0: I read the script from eighty three and I read a script from I wanna say eighty nine And I can't remember if I read any that were in between. And then I read some post-Total Recall scripts that we'll talk about next week when we talk about Minority Report when they were trying to do Total Recall 2 and have Doug Quaid still on Mars. And now the uh, mutants that have psychic abilities that we see here end up being part of pre-crime. And so this kind of moves into the Minority Report world. But as far as... What we saw as far as Verhoeven touches, I never saw a script that had the TV commercials. And I think those two TV commercials that happen when Quaid gets onto the uh, train, I think both of those are so verhoeven-esque or i should say ed neumeier-esque because we're seeing those in robocop we're seeing those here and then we're going to see them again in starship troopers and it's very telling to me that neumeier was not involved on this script but it was uh, goldman and shushet so i think that it was probably coming from the direction of verhoeven to say I like these commercials. We need to have a way to introduce recall, and we need to have a way to introduce, you know, getting him over to Mars. So having those two spots, both in the train, I think, are very clever.
2: Those are great, and I love that uh, you know the scene where Arnold's doing the jackhammer, uh, and you know, to your point, uh, Rob, he's he's very jacked doing the jackhammer, but uh, also his uh, his coworker uh, Robert Costanza is very. Uh, it's like you get the jiggling muscles on the one, and you get the jiggling fat on the other, and and you see they're both pretty effective. But um, uh, when he talks to him about uh, about recall, he's like, oh, you know that place, and he says, oh, recall, recall, recall. Is clearly he had not heard <laughs> the commercial yet, like, because recall, recall, recall sticks in your head so much. Yeah, I mean, it sounds uh, it sounds so perfectly awful that i won't shake it forever but uh sounded more like a a disco hit coming from uh uh harry
0: yeah dr edgemar is another person that we are introduced to first on a screen through the commercial he's not at the recall facility itself but then we see him pop up later on on mars so he's another introduction to a character through a screen it's, it's interesting the, the use of the
1: screens for introduction. This is, I remember, um, and I don't know if there, you listened to, uh, commentary with Verhoeven on this or not, and if he postulated this in terms of total recall. But I remember when he talked about Robocop, he, he talked about how he couldn't go at it straightforward. You, he had to give glimpses of things first and then give you Robocop. And that was part of, I think, the screen use and other things was that he wanted to bring you into this world, but he couldn't just bring you into the world. He had to give you these small glimpses to get you to buy into it first before he brought you in. And I think maybe he sort of felt the same way here, that if it was just a full frontal assault, you just go, get the fuck out of here and like laugh it off. So this was a way for him to build realism. This was a way for him to play on the fact that most of our lives since um television has come in has been mediated through a screen and even more so. And when you look at, you know, the, the other one that this kind of reminds me of, but the remake really rips off. It's not as bad in here is blade runner and how the use of screen and advertising and all of that. And blade runner is in there that really becomes evident in the remake, but it's, it's kind of the same same idea, in there you see at times.
0: Yeah, that one of the first items that we see in Blade Runner is that advertisement of the Japanese woman putting that thing in her mouth. You know, right after the eyeball. I mean, that it's yeah, it's right up there. And then the blimp with the ads on it, and the whole come, go to the off-world colonies that we hear throughout everything. That's a really good point.
2: The off-world, uh, get get your ass to Mars is what they might as well be saying uh, on the commercials. But I liked that. Uh in in uh, Total Recall, in in the Paul Verhoeven version, Earth is Earth is definitely a nicer place, and and Mars is kind of a shithole. But in uh, the off world colonies, uh, advertised in Blade Runner, Blade Runner is obviously or uh, Earth is definitely not where you want to be anymore. If you can get out, you should get out.
0: Yeah, there's piffle everywhere. Yeah, we get so many of those nice ways that we are setting things up. You know, we see almost everything twice. We see the whole idea of the x-ray machine, use the, the quote-unquote right way, way when he's passing through it. Then we'll get it later on when he's running through it and he has a gun. We'll get things like, um, you know, Benny the cab driver shows up at one point and tries to get him into his cab. And then he get, comes back and we see him again. So there are you know, repeated things that we're going to get throughout here that do that job that I think you're talking about, Rob, when it comes to the introduction and then the follow through. And I think another thing that really helps with this movie feeling like a Verhoeven film is the Jerry Goldsmith score, which feels like he is just, and I love Jerry Goldsmith, so I mean this with all due respect, it feels like he is riffing on Basil Polidorus so much. Like, there's elements of Conan in here, and then there are definitely elements of Robo cop in here. So it just feels like he's playing with those things. And then that dream sound that he has, it feels very twilight zone to me. So just that sounds very much like it was coming right from the twilight zone.
2: I'm glad you mentioned Conan. Cause I actually had to look that up. I was like, God, that sounds like Conan and the very, the very f- opening, uh, the, the opening credits, uh, so, yeah, it was a good call
0: there. I don't know when the first time I saw this movie and realized, oh, 90% of this film is probably a dream. But once it finally hit me that that was the case, I respected this movie even more. And I don't know if that's just like me being stupid and not realizing, like, oh, they are setting all this stuff up right from the get go. But Now when I watch it, I'm just like, okay, yeah, I really feel like he is probably sitting in a chair somewhere having that psychotic embolism, but I really don't care. And it's so much fun to watch this regardless of whether he is going to be lobotomized at the end of it or not.
1: That's the point that I made at the open in terms of how I think this film and having that kind of experience with it allowed me to get into other movies that... Weren't so driven by. Well, is it real? Is it not real? What's real? What isn't real? And I think that sometimes people get way too caught up into those aspects and forget the larger themes and ideas.
2: The way to interpret the the film is, uh, I think, very much, very much up to the viewer. And I think that's by design, certainly from uh, the writers and, and from Verhoeven, and um, I'm sure Arnold had had a fair amount of his own. His own say in, in what went into the script and what stayed out. And what if you think about Verhoeven as somebody who makes, uh, you know, his American films especially being very uh, genre uh, pictures, but subversive. It's hard to tell sometimes, you know, what's what's clear satire in uh, in Total Recall and what you know in Starship Troopers. He kind of makes you eat shit while you're enjoying uh, the violence on screen, and then. Uh, the same with a, a lot of his stuff, but I think I think that that's it. In Total Recall, is uh, is that you know if you told the audience this is all this is all in his head, none of this is real. Um, I don't think I don't think they'd have any particular interest in in watching it. You know, I think most people who saw it and loved it probably went with. Yeah, he's a real secret agent. This is really happening. And I think you can you can read that into it, you know, every uh if if you're prone to, but uh but I I, I think the more you know about Verhoven and and uh certainly if you think of it as a Philip K. Dick movie, then I think uh you're probably leaning uh leaning toward the other way. But but he gives him an out too, you know, when he's talking to Quado and Cuado says it's actions that make you you know uh that that make you a good or bad person that it's not what you think about something it's it's the actions and so if if he's even in that situation if it's if it's a dream if he's choosing to do the right thing in a dream uh and and risk being stuck there uh then um then i guess that you can you can kind of have your cake and eat it too in that way
0: You know, in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about the film Annihilation, and the end of that movie, spoiler alert, there is a doppelganger that comes along, and I think that the, you know, you're talking, Rob, about uh, dream imagery and dream logic, and there's so much to do with You know psychology when it comes to the doppelganger and just that feeling of the uncanny. If you see something that looks exactly like you and that possibly is you and will that try to take you over and all of those fears that come along. And this movie is really smart to play on all that stuff. Once he first sees Hauser and Hauser is a friend, but then when we get that second reveal of Hauser and Hauser as the enemy, and now he wants to take over the Quaid body and lose Quaid forever, it plays upon some real scary stuff that I don't know if we'd necessarily give this movie as much credit for as we should. And of course, we're going to get doubling throughout so much of this movie as well. I mean, the whole idea of the two women and, you know, the, the blonde, the brunette, the whole play upon that. Jed, you mentioned Quato, and Quato actually being two people in one body is a really smart idea. Quato was represented in the script as being quato and being what they would call the oracle head. And it was basically, it reminded me a lot of how to get ahead in advertising the, with Richard E. Grant, where the, the, uh, the head came out of his neck, this little tiny head came out of his neck. And he wasn't George in the script, he was just quato and then this little oracle would come up and Quato would kind of go under. So it was similar, but a little bit different. But the whole idea of Quato coming out of the body, the way that he does in the finished film, for me, that feels like this is the influence of David Cronenberg. And there's a lot of... I mean, we, we keep talking about how this fits into Verhoeven's filmography, and there's so many things that really make it work that way. But if this had remained a David Cronenberg picture, as it was originally supposed to be. We talked a lot about that on the episode we did on the fly. This fits in really well with what he was doing at the time. I mean, think of how Videodrome goes and the way that we have the James Woods character, that he gets involved in this whole plot, and there's these overall conspiracy theories, the way that his body is being used, and does he buy into Videodrome or does he not, etc., etc. To go from something like that into something like a total recall, it's really kind of an easy transition for me. And I feel like there's a lot of things, and of course, when we talked about Existenz, you know, he Cronenberg uh, makes tons of references to Philip K. Dick and that to the point where he has Perky Pat cereal that um Jennifer Jason Lee and Jude Law are eating. And we know he's a Philip K. Dick fan, and I think that Video his version of Total Recall, and Existence would have fit together like a real nice package.
2: Yeah, I kept thinking of all the uh, you know the remakes. Uh, there was RoboCop and Total Recall remake pretty close together, and and I thought, man, that uh, Jose Padilla makes a, a better a better case for a, a personality behind the RoboCop, uh, even though I don't think it's anything to brag about, um, than, than Len Wiseman did but I thought, man, why don't you get how fun would it be to see Paul Verhoeven and, and uh David Cronenberg kind of, you know, swap franchises there, uh and or, you know, do do we, their own riffs on each other's each other's stuff. You know, Michael Ironside of course being in this uh maybe made me think of uh, Cronenberg most. But uh yeah, all the all the mutants, Dean Norris and, and the whole the whole cast of mutants, uh Made me think of, uh, you know, I wonder how much, how much groundwork had been done there in the, uh, the Cronenberg version.
1: The other thing that I felt about um, the mutants in here was I got a bit of kind of a... And I think it's probably the only film that I can think of that maybe has a cast of people this broad, where you have all these different people with, obviously, they're all their various forms of malady. It's not like they all have the same... And it kind of reminded me of maybe Freaks, but obviously Freaks, you know, these were all people with genuine dwarfism or other maladies as opposed to being makeup effects.
0: We talked about how much groundwork had been laid by Cronenberg, and I think a lot of stuff had been laid out by him. People were encouraging me to try to find some of the makeup people or some of the folks that were initially involved on this project when Cronenberg, and I can't say initially because he was like the... second or third director that was associated with it. I was getting encouraged, yeah, find somebody that had worked on that and you'll see just how much groundwork that Cronenberg laid. And it's like, okay, yeah, I will try to do that. I was unsuccessful unfortunately. And we know that what happened was, you know, a moved from Cronenberg maybe to somebody else and then to Bruce Beresford and he was going to make it in 87. 87 to 90 seems like a long time, but it actually turned around pretty quickly once Dino De Laurentiis' company went out of business and they sold off this property to Carol Co. And then Arnold steps in and says, Hey, Mario Vassar, you need to pick this up. And then he goes to, it was really this whole package was put together by Arnold. You know, he was the one who said, you know to Carol co buy this property he goes to Verhoven he's like I want you to direct this and pretty much brings the whole thing together you know and he's got the clout he's got the star par- power at this point in order to make this thing happen and once they did get the green light i mean it moved pretty quickly there are a couple revisions of the scripts that are out there but it was a pretty fast process to actually get this out and ready by. I can't remember if this was a summer release or fall release of 1990, but it moved fast. I'd like to
2: know if it was uh, Schwarzenegger's input or Verhoeven's that um, that they got to play with Schwarzenegger's image so much that this was the kind of the time of his career that he was starting to already realize that you know he needed to play with his. With his image, Twins had come out, but, you know, I think 1990 is also when Kindergarten Cop came out. So, you know, comedies were a new thing for him. And, you know, he would go on to be a pregnant man and things like that and other movies. You know, in this one, I I like that uh, he does some of the, one of the major action sequences wearing a dress you know when he's uh revealed as as the fat lady at customs and he does one you know wrapped in a silly looking towel around his head and and certainly some of the best special effects moments of the film are you know making his face blow up and and look completely ridiculous and i don't know if that was uh uh, verhoven sensing uh arnold was game for this kind of thing or game or arnold being uh savvy enough uh to say hey let's Let's really play with my image here. Let's let's kind of poke some holes in it and 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 have fun that way.
0: I don't know, Jed, what it is. Why I keep having you on uh, these movies where people go into low pressure atmospheres and start to blow up. <laughs>
2: That's right, and uh, and have the uh, the identity, the reality thing. I think what Mulholland Drive and Twelve Monkeys and uh, and this one. I don't know why I keep coming back for these. And session nine. There you go.
0: Exactly. You never know what's going to happen on here, apparently. I want to keep you off guard. I had a friend who... Uh, wanted to watch The Sixth Day with his wife and he's like oh this is the one where Arnold gets cloned and she's like he gets cloned in every movie he's like what are you talking about and then she starts to lay out for him like how many movies he actually plays doubles or twins to your point and just there were so many things where he'll be you know even you mentioned kindergarten cop you know where he's the super badass John Kimball cop and then he has to turn into the nice Mr. Kimball cop and so he was definitely working on both sides against the middle when it came to his personas
2: yeah i watched the sixth day too the other day just uh to revisit it for this and it's very clearly it's it's nowhere near as successful as this but i think he's trying to make a lightning happen strike twice there
0: yeah Sixth Day is pretty bad the only thing i liked about it was the whole idea of repet and repopulating your pets if you like them that much which i think might have inspired barbara strike's end i'm not sure
2: so I was watching uh, Total Recall with my uh, with my son who's seen a handful of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and he was, you know, we were cracking up at all the one-liners and he looked at me and he said, is that just, is that something that, that Arnold does in all his, and he was like, yeah, that's, that's what he does, that's his thing. But man, by the time they got around to the sixth day, it had the clunkiest one-liner ever when he tosses clone Tony Goldwyn on top of other Tony Goldwyn and... I told you to go screw yourself. I did not mean for you to take it literally.
0: Two, three words at most, please. I always loved how the Simpsons would make
1: fun of him for the um, the one-liners. Because there's several times over the years that they've had that character, and I, the, the name escapes me. Oh, McBain. Me. Yeah, and he would you know, have these one-liners in there, and it's an obvious nod to the fact that he was
0: the king of the one-liners in this period. I mean, by the time this script got around to these guys, it had been through so many people and there had been so many interesting ideas that got injected throughout all the years. I mean, even just little things like why his name is Hauser, you know, playing off of the enigma of Casper Hauser. It's like, who thinks of that? You know, okay, that's pretty cool. You know, it's a nice little nod there.
1: I didn't get that until I looked at your rundown here and I go, oh, okay. And, and I knew the Herzog film for years, and it's been redone so many times, the idea of the, the wild child character that shows up and nobody knows who they are.
0: I mean, even when it comes to Dr. Edgemar's name, where I think Mar as in sea, like he's on the edge of the sea of sleep, but I could be overthinking that completely.
2: I read the uh, the short story, we can remember it for you wholesale, and I've seen the the Len Weisman uh reboot or remake and I I assumed that a lot of the stuff in there had maybe been drawn from the short story you know the stuff that was in there that wasn't in in version but uh, but no I mean those the screenwriters really took a kind of basic idea and and uh, and turned it into you know the iconic film the yeah the the film is I mean the the short story is is, is pretty short and it's pretty pretty much you know the idea which is the core of the film but um you know you don't uh, i mean if you've just watched the two movie versions then you think well surely a three-breasted woman is is kind of the main thrust of the, <laughs> <laughs> the movie or the short story that's that's the main idea but you know, they they really i think did a hell of a job building out uh you know making a great movie full of ideas. They they took it and, and used it as a launch pad and, and made some really cool, cool jumps with it.
0: Well, yeah, so much of the short story is the first act of the film. The whole idea of, hey, I want to go to Mars. There's this company that will implant my uh, a memory of this trip. He gets to the place and they go, oh, there's already a memory in here. And that's kind of where the first act of the movie ends. And that's also where possibly, you know, he gets thrust into this dream world and that's the, you know, the rest of the film. But when it comes to the short story, I mean, there's that, that that's, that's the core of the story. But then there's that weird part where they're like, okay, well now we have to remove this and do this. And we'll, and, and it ends up that he, he has this memory that's, In his head where he has, uh, or they're going to plant a memory in his head about some aliens that come to Earth that look like little mice and rather than crushing them he makes friends with them, shows them empathy, which is a big thing for Philip K. Dick, shows them empathy and uh, then they say, okay, as long as you're alive we won't attack the planet and kill everyone basically. And then when they go to implant that memory they go, oh wait, no, it's already here this actually happened. And that's kind of like the twist of the, 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 the story at the end, that Twilight Zone moment. But they make him feel so bad about that memory because they're just like, this is so juvenile and so childish. And when they find out that it's real, they're like, oh, shit. Okay, we kind of screwed up. And that's it. I mean, so story over. But, yeah, to take that as your core and then expand upon it to do the second and third acts of this film, which are just – I think, uh, you know, I wrote down the phrase gleefully ultra violent. There's so much great violence and great action in here. And then also some real cerebral moments. I mean, compare the moment in the, uh, in the underground, in the, the train station, the subway station and the amount of violence and when he's using the body as the shield and just. God, it is so disgusting, but so funny at the same time. That moment compared with Dr. Edgemar coming in and laying out the rest of the plot for Quaid in the apartment, uh, that he has on Mars. I mean, it's just fantastic. Or the hotel room, I should say. To go from moments of just brutality to really heady that make you sit there and think and like, is this real? Is this not real? And then when he, after he kills Edgemar, that the wall just explodes you know It's like his whole world is literally crumbling on him and then we go off into pretty much the third act of the film
1: but that's i guess where i come in with the whole you know robocop world because you get that over-the-top violence and then things to think about and and i think that that's where verhoeven is so great because yes. he comes from that sensibility i mean. I tell everyone who's only seen his American films, really, you're doing yourself a disservice. You need to go back and watch, you know, Soldier of Orange, Turkish Delights, Spethers. I mean, his his stuff back in Holland are just amazing. Like, I've never seen a bad film of his before 1987, you know, of his Holland films. I mean, they're just great.
0: I definitely owe it to myself to do that. I think I've only tried to see what's the one flesh and and blood.
2: That was his first English language.
0: And I was just like, eh, but I need to go back and watch the rest of those. They're they're really good.
2: Getting back to the, the subway uh, scene, the human shield. I gotta say that moment, there are so many moments in this movie that I think, you know, it's like every five minutes I'm like, Oh wait, this is my favorite part. Oh wait, no, this is my favorite part. But that moment, when he uses the body uh, of just this bystander so callously, I mean, the guy's probably already dead from being shot, but then he just holds him up, and I read about audience reactions when uh, the Wild Bunch first came out and all the carnage of the innocent town folk getting shot to hell during the bank robbery in the opening, the opening scene and how shocking that was for... Uh, audiences. I didn't see Wild Bunch for several years uh, after I saw Total Recall, but but I had that reaction watching Total Recall. I was like, "Oh wait, like this is a essentially a silly action movie on one level that works great." But I really felt that violence of that guy getting shot to hell, and um, and yeah, it uh, like like RoboCop has got those great squib work and um, you know stuff that you just don't really get anymore uh verhoven really has beautiful gunshots but god that corpse getting lugged around just abused so it i felt it uh, in a way that uh probably changed the way i watched action movies to a to a certain degree
0: i think for me the t- coup de grace is when he actually throws the body at those guys <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny it is funny and i think i laughed and also gasped when I first saw it, i you, you got that double reaction, which is, I think, classic Verhoven. he's like, "You want thrills? I'll give you thrills, but here's <laughs> here's another thing that's going on that maybe you're not paying attention to.
1: To me, that is the the same thing with the Mr. Kenny scene in RoboCop, where, you know, the executive just gets blown to smithereens by the Ed 209, and you're just like, at one point, going, oh, man, and then you, you laugh, because it just is ridiculous at the same time, too, just the overkill. The one thing I noticed in here, and I don't know if there was any articles written about this at the time when it happened, because I don't remember movies having this much product placement. And I think I wrote down about 15 different logos that are (laughs) highlighted through here, including variant logos such as USA Today, which is Mars Today. So, I mean, there's like Hilton, Sony, Coke. It's amazing they have Coke and Pepsi in here. I thought that was pretty incredible. Well, isn't it only Coke on Earth and then Pepsi on Mars? We can talk about the, um, the, the the demographics of those later. Um, <laughs> Jack in the Box, Sharper Image, Bexvere, MGD, Best Western, and I'm sure I'm missing some. So it's like just... Um, so many amazing uh product placements in here to the point where i'm amazed there's not one point where somebody like actually picks up a beer in slow-mo and you know make sure that that image is really (laughs) logos really keyed into the into the shot i mean it's just amazing how how many of these are all over the place it's like people only do
0: things because they get paid and that's just really sad I mean for me the biggest one was that Hilton logo when he's walking into that Hilton on Mars that just stands out so much because I think it's almost the size of his body and right there like torso level but yeah it's it, there are a bunch that and uh, like the Mars today one I always gets a laugh whenever that one um shows up on screen um but yeah I never picked up on just how many logos there were
1: You can get away with it because obviously it's like, okay, it's a bar, so of course it's going to have bar signs. Even some of the shelves and stuff like in the the apartment and in other places, it's like, no, they want you to notice that 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 can is brighter color than everything else that's there.
0: I wonder if that was a commentary or if that was more of a, we can get money from these products. The
1: RoboCop world and Starship Troopers world—they're not real products. They're they're satirical versions of products with fake names and all of that stuff. In here, they're actual products. They're actual things. Which I
2: wonder how much of that is due to the you know what was an exorbitant budget by the day standards. I mean, uh, it, it got pretty derided for for being one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time it came out. I wonder how much of that was uh, <laughs> really needing it.
1: And I was trying to remember if there was any tie-ins. Do you remember any tie-ins? Because I remember when Batman came out the year before, there were like tie-ins with, I think, Taco Bell and other things like that. And I can't remember if they tried to tie Total Recall into something like that or not. I
0: can't for the life of remember. I think
2: you could do it with the r-rated
0: <laughs> oh i have an answer for that oh you do yes i do uh, i managed to find a commercial for the 1991 toyota 4x4 where our main character gets the memory of driving a 4x4 implanted in his brain
4: i see you've selected memory implant seven the ultimate adventure vehicle preference
0: Toyota 4x4, the black
2: one. Excellent choice.
4: 91 Toyota 4x4. Ultimate
0: he likes it so much that he basically does the whole self-lobotomization, and the guy who's there at the recall company is like, oh, we lost another one. So there definitely was product placement or product tie-in with this one. Now, as far as fast food stuff, I'm not really sure. That's I'm hilarious
2: because the remake looks like a car commercial. The whole right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the remake has so much of a look of uh, Minority Report to me, which totally does have all the car tie-ins for me.
2: I had an observation about uh, some of the way they get through the the clunky uh, all the exposition in this. There's a there's a great visual cue when uh, uh, Arnold is watching the first Hauser video. He's sitting there eating like chocolate bar, he's, and he's. It looks like he's he's watching TV, and it, it's it's almost like a visual cue to the audience. Like, okay, just you know, keep eating your popcorn and, and tune in. We're you know, we're gonna get to all the good stuff in <laughs> in a minute. But I the I don't remember why he's eating that chocolate bar or whatever it was. But it just cracked me up the last couple of times I watched it. Uh, in the In the last month, it's such a silly looking seems very obvious uh, imitation of a of a of a dumb a dumb blockbuster attendee uh like ooh tell me a story tell me tell me a good good story no no, <laughs> and then they splatter the screen with all that copious amount of blood from a single rat it was awesome
0: yeah, I never knew there was so much gore inside one little rat kind of makes you want to find out Robbie mentioned the audio commentary and I mean, it's an Arnold audio commentary, so of course he just kind of likes to repeat what's happening on screen. Um, (laughs) Though I kind of wish that Verhoeven had done it solo. I found the most interesting thing for me was when he said that he wanted to use Michael Ironsides for RoboCop, even before Peter Weller was involved. I had no idea. I'd never heard that before. And that they could not see eye-to-eye on the character and, but he liked Ironsides enough that he wanted to bring him back for Total Recall and then eventually brought him back for Starship Troopers. So he's got a good jaw. Ironsides has got a good jaw. So him as Robocop, I could kind of see after he said that. But I mean, Peter Weller just is so iconic in that role.
1: Michael Ironsides in here is, is great, but there's just seems to be moments with his character where I go, I don't know if I'm buying that. Like he seems so bent on wanting to kill Arnold and then he knows that he slept with his woman and killed her, but he still lets him get away with it. I was just like, really? I'm like, That doesn't seem like that's something this guy would do. It seems like he'd be like, oh, no, it's on. Like, I'm I'm getting my I'm getting my pound of flesh out of this guy. Believe me.
2: I enjoyed he and uh, his cohort, uh, Michael Champion Helm. Uh, character. Ironside and Champion, I wanted like a TV show of those two as like, you know, sleazy detectives or something like that. They had a really nice, nice rapport. I don't know Michael Champion from anything else, uh, but, um, he, I really enjoyed him in the movie, uh, his, all his comments. You know, I'm sure sure so she hated every
0: minute of it. <laughs> yeah, and then when he's helping him out, get the, uh, you know, I can't hear you anymore, Mr. Cohegan, like that whole thing.
3: What? <sighs> what? I couldn't hear that last part. The connection just got really bad.
0: I don't know. I don't think I'll play it on this episode, but if folks want to go back to previous times, I've uh, I've interviewed Ronnie Cox a couple times, and he is always so nice to talk to, And he has this great story about he was working on Total Recall at the exact same time that he was working on Albert Pune's Captain America. So he's being like the nicest president in history and then the meanest son of a bitch on Mars. And the way that he would shift between those two personalities and the way that – I think they like flew him from – Italy, back to Mexico, back to Italy, and just like, he kept going back and forth between these two locations and the biggest thing for him was that slicked back hair and just watching it again and watching his hair in this, because he does talk about there's one moment where his hair isn't slicked back and it just bugged Verhoeven so much that that he wanted to reshoot that whole sequence where his hair isn't slicked. But yeah, he is. Cohagen, I mean, talk about one liners. Cohagen has so many fucking great one liners. I mean, the whole.
1: In 30 seconds, you'll be dead. Then I'll blow this place up and be home in time
2: for cornflakes.
0: is probably one of my favorite lines still.
2: The Cohagen line that totally disarmed me uh, recent watching was. Uh when uh, he's he's got quaid strapped to the chair to turn him back to hauser and 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 arnold's like
3: that guy's a fucking asshole not true it's one of my best friends
2: the line delivery on that sold me i was like oh Cohagen she's like a whole other side to Cohagen. i i, I kind of want to see the cohagan and hauser special uh they seem like they'd be pals, and, and I don't know. It was a great line delivery, though, because it, the line in the script, I don't know that it does much, but his delivery gave that character a whole new dimension. And, you know, I mean, it, it was two seconds and he's back to, you know, pretty one dimensional asshole, but, uh, but not true. He, he didn't like people talking about Hauser that way.
0: Uh, yeah, <laughs> he's scary. my golf buddy. I like his, um,
1: In in here and like I said again, I keep referencing back to Robocop, but the the thing where it's Hauser and Cohagen, and it's like, hey buddy, how you doing? Yeah, that's right, you know, and all (laughs) that, and it's the two of them, and they're it's it's you know, they're just hanging out. It's like, hey, what's going on, buddy? It's like, yeah, well, you know. Yeah, it isn't going to work out and all that, and, you know, he's, like, Arnold's got to watch the little video of himself with Cohagen, and I, I just love the little interaction between the two of them there. There's some really good, like, non-verbals, like, they're not even saying anything, they're just kind of, like, two buddies, like, hey, cool,
0: you know, Yeah, get a drink, you know, let's go play. And oh. the framing of that is yeah. fantastic, with the two in the back and the two up front, and the way that they're looking at each other, it's oh wow it's so good (laughs) but that in a way kind of reminds me of you know again the use of
1: video and then the the whole thing where um i i get the feeling that if it wasn't michael ironside maybe it would have been kurtwood smith you know and the whole delivery of at that time which was um, we thought was amazing was i guess the dvd or whatever where he goes to to bob morton's house and puts it on he's like hey buddy how you doing
3: Hello, buddy boy. Nick Jones here. I guess you're on your knees about now. Begging for your life.
1: Then. You don't feel so cocky now, do you? Bob? Whatever he's paying you,
3: I'll double it right now. You know what the tragedy is here, Bob? We could have been friends. But you wouldn't go through our channels. You went over my head that hurt but life goes on it's an old story the fight for love and glory huh Bob it helps if you think
1: of it as a game Bob every game has a winner
3: and a loser I'm cashing you out
1: Bob and it kind of reminds me in the same the same kind of tone.
0: Yeah, totally. I always think of Kurt Woodsmith coming in and just going, Bitches leave.
1: If he ever like showed up at a convention, you know, like a Comic-Con or something, I would just go up and give him a couple of bucks and just say, Just do it. Just say it. Which
0: one? He's got so many good lines. Which one would you have him say? Well, you need the bitches leave. I mean it's just Oh. oh. For me it'd be I'd give him two Tigers tickets and be like, the Tigers are playing Tonight. <laughs> and you fly, Bobby. <laughs> oh, Kurtwood Smith. He is just a treasure. Oh, American treasure. And Rachel Ticanton. I mean, this is like the third time we've talked about a movie that she's in. And I really <laughs> like her. And I like her in this role. And I like I always question the amount that she gets brainwashed by the machine, because I like that after she's in the machine and and uh, Cohagan says, you know, we're we're getting you fixed. That after she comes out, she calls him honey or something, and it's just like, okay, so there was a little bit of domestication happening there, but then she manages to kind of pull herself together and continue to kick ass afterwards.
3: Are you right? Are you still you? I'm not sure, dear.
0: What do you think?
2: Athletic, sleazy, and demure. She and Sharon Stone have a great, great fight scene. I mean, the physicality between the two of them, I buy it. I mean, they might as well have been Cynthia Rothrock and Michelle Yeoh or something like that. They really had a great... I mean, some of that's the editing and things like that, but, you know, I think think Sharon Stone was uh, uh, fantastic in the role, and and the, the two of them... Fighting each other was was great. I'd, I'd I'd sign on for a longer version of that for sure.
0: I'm sure that there have been term papers written about Sharon Stone in that suit when she shows up in the suit, and that you know is she now trying to be a more masculine character, and is. Rachel or is Melina more the feminine character is Rachel wearing pants in this scene and all that kind of stuff and I'm sure there have also been term papers written about the use or non-use of African-American characters in his films I know I saw a video when we were talking about Starship Troopers about how the black people that end up there's one black woman who touches a white person and then she gets her arm melted off later on in the film. And it's just like, can black people not touch white people? And in this movie, you've got the black lady who's doing her nails at the beginning that works at recall. And then you've got Benny, the cab driver who ends up being this duplicitous sellout to his own mutant people. And it's just like, Oh, that's a little troublesome to me. I'm not sure how I feel about this necessarily.
2: Regarding the lady doing her nails, I thought that was a nice visual cue of, uh, you know, that's somebody else who's just altering reality like it's nothing, you know. She just, I'm going to change, I'm going to be this character. No, I'm going to be this character. No, I want to do this. You know, she does it two or three times uh, in in another scene. She's also doing it. But uh, I just, I like that little tiny touches about how, yeah, we just change this about ourselves so easily uh, when it suits us and,
0: The guy that plays McLean, the salesman for Recall, I think his performance is one of the top things. I just absolutely love him as that kind of used car salesman, just so smarmy, and especially when he does that whole... What is it that is exactly the same about every single vacation you have ever taken? I
1: give up. You? You're the same.
0: No matter where you go, there you are. It's always the same old you. Let me suggest that you take a vacation from yourself. I know, it sounds wild. It is the latest thing in travel. We call it the ego trip. Oh, I'm not interested in that. You're gonna love this, Doug. We offer you a choice of alternate identities during your trip. I am face it, why go to Mars as a tourist when you can go as a playboy or a famous jock or- Secret agent. How much is that? Ah, let me tantalize you.
4: You are a top operative. Back under deep cover on your most important mission. People are trying to kill
1: you left and right. You meet this beautiful, exotic woman. Come on. I don't want to spoil it for you, Doug, but you rest assured by the time the trip is over, you get the girl, kill the bad guys, and save the entire planet. Now
2: you tell me, isn't that worth a measly 300 credits?
0: I'm sure he makes big money on commissions. Well, you want to
1: talk about problematic, we'll talk about the remake and how the salesman character changes, and that's problematic.
0: Well, on that cue, I think we should go ahead and take a break and play an interview with screenwriter Gary Goldman, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages.
3: How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast.
2: Part 2, The Blake Seven Method. Remove the character from the scripts.
1: Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present,
2: and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com
1: I don't know how he does it. I mean, the guy does books. He writes reviews. He's on the show every week with me. I'm talking about my humble podcast partner, Mike White from The Projection Booth. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary. I just wanted to let you know, Cinema Detours, Mike's new book is out. It collects a bunch of reviews that he's done over the past decade or so for various places here and there, and you basically want to pick it up, and I'll tell you why. Because some of those older reviews, the movies that you have seen, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend. And then the movies that you haven't seen yet, well, Mike will add about another 100 to 150 movies that you're going to have to see before you die. You can give him a wedgie or something next time you see him, and you, know, you thank him for that one. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can get it at Amazon.com, and you can get it in either paper form, if you're old school, or you can get it for your Kindle and your e-reader. So... There's no reason to detour Cinema Detours. From Mike White, and of course, you can always learn more about what we do, about the books, and everything else at projection-booth.com. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder.
2: I'm Wendy Hemprock.
1: The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television.
2: Welcome everyone to a special supernatural focus bonus. Hello everyone,
1: show. and welcome to the Faithon, a family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel.
2: Hi
0: everyone, welcome to the study welcome group. To the
1: Top Genre Characters of All Time Countdown.
2: And
0: tonight we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season Three.
1: Find us at sci fi tvcom
2: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the projection booth are talking about good party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema, come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate
0: Movies every Tuesday. I really was curious as far as how you really got into movies. I wanted
4: to be a novelist and then it's, it's, I'm a, I'm a, I'm from New Orleans. I went to college in in Bo- the Boston area at Brandeis University. When I got there I started seeing a lot of foreign films like you know Ingmar Bergman and my vintage was Ingmar Bergman, you know Fellini, um, Louis Malle, uh, you know they were that, that was the those are the movies that were coming out when I first got there and I realized that I liked that uh, cinema was the art was was the art form of our time and that if I wanted to express myself I should do it in movies uh, I, I then just started watching a lot of movies I wasn't a film major because Brandeis didn't offer didn't have a film department and didn't offer a film major so I was an English major but I you know the whole time I was there by the, you know really from the time I was a freshman I knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker and I I, I wanted to actually be a kind of a, um, a European-style auteur filmmaker. Um, and it was only later after I got to Hollywood and started working in the business and in the industry that I, uh, I figured out... I started to really like Hollywood movies and wanted to work within the Hollywood industry.
0: So what was that process like as far as kind of breaking into the industry?
4: Well, I made some films, and then I had a break. Uh, I worked with this French director, Louis Mal, who was one of my heroes. He came to America. He was a French director and he was making uh, Pretty Baby, and I'm from New Orleans, and I, I, actually, I managed to meet him, and I helped him with the research for the film, and then he asked me if I would be his assistant. So I worked with him on Pretty Baby and helped find the locations for the picture and you know, then made another couple of movies, uh, You know, made an, uh, another uh, documentary about New Orleans, uh, and then um, moved back to L.A., was involved in a little distribution company for a while, and then got my next job with Larry Gordon a big Hollywood producer of mainly action movies who had a deal at Paramount at the time. So I worked for him for a couple of years at Paramount. Uh, it was Larry. It was a very small company, so I was involved in everything. And it was Larry who was the boss. Joel Silver was then his second in command. And then there was me, and then eventually also uh, Larry's brother, Chuck Gordon. And I really learned the ropes there. And then um, after a couple of years, Larry fired me. And and then I after that I sat down and I wrote a screenplay which was Big Trouble in Little China and I sold it and so I ended up be- becoming a writer you know continued as a writer taking you know basically expecting one of these days to you know work my way back to being a writer director uh, but it didn't work out that way and I ended up staying a writer and you know and now uh, ultimately a writer producer
0: I have tried my best to find yours and and David Weinstein's version of. Big Trouble in Little China, because I hear it differs vastly.
4: Well, you know, this is true. It's both different and similar. We wrote it as um, something, it it was about a cowboy in Chinatown in 1899. And because of that, we wrote it, this is shortly after uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was, you know, a little bit more of a, I would say it's somewhere between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. What happened is that, you know, people read it and liked it, and uh, it was, you know, we sold it and got us launched as uh, as writers, and then what happened was that um, it ended up actually being acquired by my former boss, Larry Gordon, <laughs> who became president of 20th Century Fox, and after sending it around to a couple of directors, you know, decided that, you know, who, who didn't say yes, I think he sent it to Walter Hill. Who was his go-to director? He didn't say yes so, to the original Western version. Larry decided uh, you know that it needed a big change, and he, uh, he sent it to uh, WD Richter, and Richter had the idea of making it contemporary. What happened was that in order to make it contemporary, he had to have a change in tone. You know I mean if, if, if something is said in the past, then it can be kind of in the land of fantasy and you'll believe it. But if it's going to be contemporary, then, you know, you, you can't really play it straight. And so uh, Richter brought in the kind of, you know, enthusiastic camp tone. That was his contribution. It was a thorough rewrite that changed the tone and the time, and the time frame. But moment by moment, beat by beat, character by character, it was, it was the same screenplay, just translated into a new time period and a new tone, so you know, Richter did a, a great job. At you know, I mean, he he reconceived it, but in another way, was incredibly faithful to it. So that's um, you know, that, that that explains why it's both different and similar.
0: So, once you manage to sell a screenplay, does that open up some doors for you?
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, from that point on, so my partner then was uh, David Weinstein, and we had a couple more deals together. We had a. Uh, a Josie and the Pussycats type story. This is our first job. We, we, we came up with our own idea of uh, of doing an update of Huckleberry Finn with Huck and Tom as Adolescents. We, uh, we, we called it Huck and Tom Get Laid, and we set that up at, the, at uh, Warner Brothers, the uh, the lad company. And then we did a kind of, uh, this is right after Michael Jackson did Thriller, and we came up with the idea of doing a kind of a, uh, a voodoo Mardi Gras musical you know, a horror musical, which was which we set up with Richard Pryor's company. And, and so, you know, yeah, we, so we were working and it got us launched. Uh, and then basically, you know, we started uh, quarreling, not over creative issues, but really just over our, you know, business issues. Some, some of them relating to the fact that, that uh, my partner really was very unhappy with the way the Big Trouble and a little kind of movie came out. And so we kind of just split up and went our separate ways. But yes, absolutely. Selling Big Trouble in Little China, you know, that was that, that was it was a, It's funny at the time we thought we made a very you know a substantial original, you know, spec screenplay sale. It wasn't you know ultimately, it actually, wasn't a lot of money. But it did it, it did the trick and it got us started. And I was very lucky because, unlike most screenwriters who have to you know put in a long time writing screenplay after screenplay before they get they they sell a screenplay and get an agent, I had I had paid my dues in other ways. You know, I had made some films. I had worked with Louis Mall. I had worked. I had started a distribution company with some buddies of mine. I had uh, worked with Larry. You know, worked with Larry Gordon with Larry Gordon and Joel Silver, uh, in the studios. And so, uh, I, I had part of my job was development. And so, I knew a lot of agents from the couple of years I spent doing development. And so. I sent the new screenplay, Big Trouble, to you know, a few of those, and we ended up. You know, several agents wanted to represent us, and we signed with one of them. So I paid my dues in other ways, but I actually managed to sell my first screenplay, my first commercial screenplay, and, and got going, going in
0: the business. Out of curiosity, what were some of the films that you were distributing? There
4: was only one. Uh, I, I was I was working with a couple of guys who I'd met in New Orleans. They had worked together, did a unique business concept. To find undistributed movies, you know, that, and to pick them up for a song and, or a promise of, of we'll, you know, your movie is sitting there. You already spent a million or two million or five million making it, but you don't have a distributor. There are a lot of movies in that category. And a lot of people went to a lot of trouble to make movies that didn't get U.S. distribution. These guys had managed to find a movie called The Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man by Robin, directed by Robin Hardy. And starring Edward Woodward, and they had managed to get the U.S. rights to it, and they put some money into devising an ad campaign and opening it in the southeast of the U.S. And they they proved their their model that they could make money that way. It was uh, you know they managed to, you know, they were making substantially more than they were putting into the advertising, and then rolling the movie out nationwide. But what happened is that they quarrelled among themselves, and two of them came to me and said, "Hey, you know, we proved this this business model." let's keep going. Why don't you come in and join us in this? And then instead of, you know, you, one of these guys who works really, really hard for a number of years to make a, an independent film and then can't get distribution for it. Or if you do get distribution for it, you get screwed. And, you know, basically the distributor takes all the money and never returns any money to you or your investors. We'll know the ropes on distribution and we can then, you know, um, you know, set ourselves up in the business and we can make movies as well as distribute them. So it sounded like a good idea, and in the end, we uh, you know, were able to raise some money and we raised but our investors had a hand in what movie we ended up distributing. And the one they liked was a movie called I think it was called "The Rip Off," and it starred Lee Van Cleef and Edward Albert and Lionel Stander. And we, you know, we picked up the rights to that, and uh, divide, you know, came, moved, moved the company out to L.A. I got myself back to L.A. I'd come to L.A. after college and then gone back to New Orleans and stayed in New Orleans, you know, during and after Pretty Baby. And this got me back to L.A. But, hey, you know, we came up with the AI campaign, and when we put it in theaters, nobody wanted to see it. So our investors who said, oh, yeah, absolutely, this is not just going to be for one movie. We're definitely behind you for, you know, four or five movies. Well, you know, let's give this idea a, a chance. They said, oh, one failure, and they were out of there. So really, the company was very short-lived. Um, the next movies we were interested in picking up were much higher caliber. We had a chance to distribute Tess of the Derbervilles, the Roman Polanski movie, Tess, and we had a chance to distribute um, The Stuntman. And so we had a chance to distribute those two movies but couldn't find an investor, you know, investors who wanted to, to, to back it. And we figured, well, you know, we're never going to get two more movies like this. <laughs> you know. They were, And if we can't raise money for these, then you know, really, why bother trying with any others? So at that point, that's when I went to work for Larry Gordon.
0: What comes first, Navy SEALs or Total Recall?
4: I'm pretty sure that I worked on Navy SEALs first. No, I definitely worked on Navy SEALs first, although we ended up coming out at the same time, you know, about, I think, the same summer, the same year. So, yeah, what happened is I split up with my partner, David, and then I got a job writing, writing Navy SEALs. When I first was a tra- you know, you know, um, approached about the project, the, p- the director was Ridley Scott. And then Ridley, by the time I signed on to do it, Ridley Scott was off the project. But we had Richard Marquand, who had done, uh, I think, Empire Strikes Back for, for George Lucas. So that was still pretty good. And then by the time, you know, um, oh, right when I handed in my screenplay, I worked with Richard Marquand. I went to London. I met with him. It was all very interesting and promising. And then he died of a stroke. And, and then they had to get a new director. They got Louis Teague. And then Louis Teague went and took the, the project in another direction. And, 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 you know, and, and, and during that time, after that, that's when I met. Uh, I wrote another screenplay on spec. I worked with another friend of mine who wrote a screenplay called Warrior. Uh, option from a, I optioned a novel, worked with my partner, uh, adapted that, uh, sold it on spec to Warner Brothers. And then after rewriting it, we attached Paul Verhoeven to direct it. And so I was working with Paul Verhoeven on this other project, Warrior. When, um, and, you know, well, we were hoping that, that would be Paul's next movie and the movie would get made but we were, you know, we were having difficulty getting the screenplay in perfect shape for Paul, and uh, before we could, Karolko and Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, approached Paul about doing Total Recall. Paul said uh, to me, he said, Gary, I really feel bad about this. I like working with you, but it looks like I'm going to have to go do this other movie first. And I said, well, what's the movie? He said, Total Recall. I said, no, that's really funny, Paul, because just, about, just a few months ago, I was called by Bruce Beresford who was in Australia, and he was directing Total Recall for Dino De Laurentiis. And he asked me if I wanted to come and work with him and rewrite the screenplay in Australia. And I said, I couldn't because I was working on my own screenplay with you. <laughs> and, then, and then what happened was that that part fell apart. I think possibly because Dino, Dino's company went bankrupt. And, and now, ironically, here was the same project, Total Recall, and Paul was on it, and he was leaving me to go do Total Recall. And so he said, well, you know, what did you think about the screenplay, you know, when you read it? I told him, he said, well, that's what I think, too. Let me see if I can get you the job rewriting it here. And he did. He got me the job rewriting Total Recall. And so I worked with him for, you know, on that for a couple of years.
0: Now, Total Recall, from what I understand, had been kicking around since the early 80s? Yes. How far back in the history did you go, or were you just looking at the Beresford version of it?
4: Well, the way we started was that Paul read all the drafts and he provided a few that he wanted me to take a look at and then we we developed our script based you know starting from like two or three different drafts that uh, of the many many drafts that existed
0: so you got to pick and choose what worked and what didn 't
4: you know when I think back over the early days, I guess we did we you know I, I guess yes, we had to figure out what worked and what didn't i don 't remember that much I think that you know the the opening what happened was that the the first half was already very good and then the problem began and 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 the question was how do you get the second half to be as good as the first half I don't think any of the you know the second halves are really particularly good and we had to really they were actually no there were a couple of versions of the second half that we liked better than others and, and yeah and so we, we, we pieced together a kind of composite version as the rough draft that we would work from and then Basically tried to figure out how to how to make the second half as good as the first half and how to make it so that the idea the ideas seemed to have, you know the good ideas seemed to have run out about halfway through around the time of the edgemar scene and uh, and the idea was can we can we keep that same kind of level of inventiveness and surprise going all the way to the end
0: I know it's kind of unfair this is thirty years ago and now that we're talking. How would it have played if we were to see that version, those early versions?
4: Well, the main difference, I mean, it, I, I, the, the first half is always very good, although I do think that I, um, you know, improve the dialogue. Um, and, and Paul, you know, Paul had this, this, uh, this amazing tone and feel and style in RoboCop, which we were going to try and, you know, to a certain degree, continue. So I would say you would recognize the story very much. But it wasn't written for Arnold. In fact, the whole point of it, I mean, Arnold was, was really wrong casting for the movie. The movie was originally, you know, at different times it was going to be played by Patrick Swayze and even Richard Dreyfus. Because the idea was that Quay, who was then called Quail, was the last person you would ever expect to be a lethal killer. So you wouldn't cast someone in the role who was an action star. You were going to go for somebody else. Would be you would be very surprised when suddenly he develops and, and displays these amazing skills. On the other hand, there was Arnold, and he thought you know he wanted to play this part. And with Arnold, because he was you know super hot at the time, the movie could get made. So the question was, how do we you know we had to adapt it for Arnold. So at the at the same time, we you know we were trying to make it more intelligent, keep the intelligence and the inventiveness going all the way to the end, and trying to find a way to make it right for Arnold. And, you know, and and, and, to, you know, and to make it, so we wanted to make a very smart Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. And, you know, that's what we set out to do. And I
0: you know, think we succeeded. From what I understand, you were the one that came up with the idea of the twist to have Hauser actually be kind of a dick.
4: Yes, that's true. Yeah. I mean, there were two steps to it. You know, Paul Verhoeven really wanted the idea that, um, well, there were two. There were two big ideas in the second half. One was that uh, you you would never know whether it was real or not, which was the and the other was was uh, uh, yes that, that, that what do you find out? I mean, the whole movie is about Quayle Quaid, wanting to get back to who he really is. And at the point where he gets back to who he is, then it stops being interesting and just a transaction. So the idea is, what if he finds out who he really is and he doesn't like who he used to be? And then he has to, he's stuck in this situation, which I think at the time was completely original of having to decide who he, you know, whether he wants to be authentic or good or authentic to what he used to be or authentic to who he feels he is now. So, yeah, that was, that was something that I, you know, that I came up with and I found really interesting.
0: That other idea, as far as not knowing if it's a dream or not, was that always running through there?
4: It was always running through with the idea that, of course, in the end, you know, you know what's real and what's not real, right? I mean, the idea that, of course, in the end, a dream is a dream and the real, which, you know, it's, but, you know, you can tell the difference between what's an implanted memory and what's real. And that, in the end, people are just trying to fool him into thinking that the dream is real. And we said, no, no, let's, let's, you know, let, let, let's actually see if we can try and pull it off. Let's try and pull off that you can't tell the difference or that it might really be, or that the truth is, is that it might really be a dream, and that that's what we're watching is his dream. And so we set out to do that as a kind of almost really more of an exercise to see if we could, and we weren't sure if we would be able to do it. You know, we were able to get to a certain point and keep it ambiguous and keep it ambiguous, and in the end, there was a moment when I cracked it, and it's when I came up with the idea that when Clay is watching... Kohegan says, there's somebody here who wants to see you. He's captured a second time. He's captured on Mars. He says, there's somebody here who wants to talk to you. And he uh, and realize that, and, and then he, he finds out who it is, and he sees that it's himself. Because the point is, the reason he believed in the first place that he was set off on this mission is that he saw himself, right? He said there's a recording from himself saying, you know, hey, buddy, you've got to go do this. You've got to go to Mars. You have to, you know, to save the planet. He believes it because it's coming from himself. So the idea was, okay, we've established that, that he'll believe himself. So the way that you prove that it's a, a, you know, that the whole thing has been a dream is when he, is when he, he tells himself that, it's, you know, that he's not really who he thinks he is. And so it, it worked perfectly, but that was, that was the key. And when I came up with the idea of that moment, um, you know, of being able to pull it off on screen, you know, that people would buy it if they saw Quaid telling himself that it was a dream. You know Quary telling himself that his his identity was was fake, and that come out somehow opened up the possibility I would say, I don't know you know that 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 was what got us over the seemingly the last hurdle, and then of course, we had to figure out how to end it with some ambiguity and and Paul came up with the idea of the state to white, which would be you know and and then of course, it were quite, and also otherwise there were just fifteen or twenty little moments that I carefully devised, you know, so that there would be. In devising the dream, everything that happened later was foreshadowed. You know, like blue skies on blue skies on Mars, and what kind of a girl do you want to meet? So sleazy and demure, and he ends up meeting a girl who's a, a hooker, but not really a hooker. You know, I mean, all of those things was sort of like crafty screenwriting to establish that everything that you thought was just naturally happening had been foreshadowed as part of uh, design of the of the dream that he bought.
0: All right, I want to get really in the weeds here for just a second and ask you what your interpretation or maybe your meaning of the original meaning of uh, Doctor Edgemar's bead of sweat. Ah, <laughs>
4: well, the bead of sweat is, of course, that's to tell. And uh, but it, it, you know the idea is that to Quade it means that that it's not authentic that he's being lied to. But you know the fact is is that you know, everything, everything within the, um, I mean, I, I don't really have a, a complete explanation for why he would have a bead of sweat, except that, you know, maybe it has something to do with the technology of, of, of how they injected Dr. Edgemar into the dream in the first place.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, you, you, push, you push me, you push me into a the corner there and, and, I have to say
4: that, you know, it's, uh, yes. Why, why? Well, except that even if you're Dr. Edgemar, and, and you're being projected into a dream. It doesn't mean you're not nervous.
0: Yeah, because you could be setting yourself up for a lawsuit.
4: Right. Yes, or being fired, or, or killed by cohab, for, for not getting the job done right.
0: Writing for Arnold must be a little bit of a challenge. As far as did you come up with some of those one-liners? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah,
4: all the dialogue pretty much is mine, and uh, yeah, the one-liners are mine. And, and in fact, but you know, we, you know, at the time, I mean, Arnold was famous for those one-liners we had a few more zingers that we didn't put in because Paul didn't want to go too far with them. You know, he felt like, okay, we're going to use these one-liners and we're going to elevate them and make them wittier and more meaningful, but we're not just going to, we're not going to use, you know, we're not going to be as take every opportunity to be corny, even if it would get a big laugh. So for example, I wrote another one where Arnold is checking into the Hilton on Mars right after he's been, you know, he's been at the spaceport and there's been that incre- that, that, big sequence with the air being sucked out and so the the desk clerk asks him so uh you know uh mr hauser that's what name he uses so, mr hauser what was the uh what did you think of our new spaceport and he said i was blown away oh <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't paul decided that even though he knew it would get a big laugh but you know it was time to you know for the movie to like be serious and, and and start getting into the drama so we did you know, that one didn't make it in.
0: From what I understand, you and Ronald Shushet were pretty much on set at all the time? Yes. Well, you know, Paul is like that.
4: Paul is a, is a European director, and he likes having the writer on the set. He's very collaborative. Um, he respects his writers. I mean, he really I mean, shoots. I mean, he, he doesn't improvise. I mean, I, I mean, he didn't improvise on Total Recall, and he didn't improvise on Basic Instinct. I mean, he really he works really hard to craft the screenplay and he shoots the screenplay, you know, 99 100%. Ron and I were there in different capacities. Ron had originated Total Recall, and he had been an executive producer on Alien and had been on the set of Alien. Uh, and so he was there as an executive producer. That was part of his contract that he got to be on the set. And I was there because I was Paul's writer. Uh, also, you know, Paul, is, uh, English is not his first language. He speaks Dutch, and so I think he also liked the idea of having a native English language partner, somebody who could really, you know, rely on just, you know, for little questions. So I was there in that way. And then, but, you know, but Ron had a very good relationship with Arnold and, and he had a hand in, you know, basically if, Paul, if, if Ron didn't like something in the screenplay, he had Arnold behind him to kind of force Paul and me in the studio to, you know, take what he said seriously. And uh, it could have been a bad situation, but actually Ron and I got along great. You know, and for all practical purposes, we worked together as writers on the set. Uh, but, but, in, but being said, I don't think it was more than, you know, 1% or 2% rewriting on the set. We really shot the screenplay as it was written in pre-production. I think the only scene I remember rewriting was the one they need for, for time and space or budget. They needed to, we, we rewrote the scene with the old lady. Quaid is in the, in the hotel uh, when he gets the call saying, come outside, there's going to be a, a, a briefcase. And he goes outside and there's a lady who's gotten there first and he has to fight with her. And that was a kind of a corny scene. You know, it was, it was vaguely amusing, but I think there, were, there, was a, uh, there was more action. There was a straight scene that was there before and they wanted to save money and cut it out. So you're it with a funny scene with the old lady. Uh, and that, I believe, was really the biggest change that we made. Everything else was, you know, was the same. And Ron and I, we, you know, Paul delegated Ron and me to watch Dailies for him. And uh, we were involved in, you know, all the other, you know, with Paul and Arnold in in most of the other creative decisions that were made on the set. It was a a fantastic experience, best experience, you know, of my career.
0: If only they could all be like that. Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) It was very rare and I appreciate it. So did you roll from that right on to Basic Instinct, or how, what was the next project for you?
4: Paul had found a short story called The Screwfly Solution by another science fiction story. And I wrote that, I adapted that, but it didn't go anywhere. Uh, and then I had an overall deal with Coralco, and I worked on Basic Instinct. Yeah, I mean, there were a few other I, you know, projects that came up. The Basic Instinct was the next thing that I worked
0: on. I'm very curious what the script was like when you first got on that project. The script was very similar to the movie.
4: People loved it always. It was you know I mean people ran they bought it for a record-setting amount, and they got Michael Douglas and they got Paul Verhoeven, and then you know but everybody had feelings about what was wrong with it. That you know there were things that felt implausible or the people there just everybody felt that it needed work. So Paul uh, and 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 you know had some ideas that he wanted to introduce that Joe Esterhaus didn't like. And Esterhaus said, give me back my screenplay. I'd rather get it back. You know, we'll just, you know, and I'll start over with somebody else. And the studio said, no way. We have Michael Douglas and Paul Verhoeven. We're making this. And, you know, so Esterhaus walked off the picture and I was there. I was in the right place at the right time because I had just worked with Paul on Total Recall and I was already under contract at Caralco. So we worked on it and yeah, and basically it was a, a question of trying to fix certain beats that didn't seem quite plausible, that didn't quite work, fixing the things that stuck out and that bothered people. Uh, but what we ended up doing was we, as, as we went through it, we found out that actually, you know, we we, we kind of you know we had, we worked really really hard to understand what was going on in each scene and what was going all the many things that needed to be accomplished in each scene. Little by little, we kind of came up with ways of playing the original scenes so that if you said them just right in just such a way that they would, they, you know, a lot of the problems went away. There were problems of understanding and intonation, And I don't know whether, you know, I would say probably 80% of it was that we came around to really seeing what Joe had in mind. And another part of it was every now and then, you know, you know, we were able to bring to it, you know, the, the way to play it. And we didn't change too much except for one thing, which was that we changed the, the balance of, of respect between the Michael Douglas and the Sharon Stone character, a little bit, so that Michael Douglas didn't seem to be such a sap. You know, he wasn't being played, and um, and that ended up being, you know, you know, um, it worked, right? That was the, the movie. People liked every everybody at the time who saw the movie liked it and found fault with it. You know, um, they liked it enough that it was the you know biggest box office hit of the war, in the world that year. But it wasn't that people and anybody ever gave it, you know, totally glowing reviews. It was like a guilty pleasure. And so I really feel that, you know, we,
2: we, we,
4: we did the very best we could to, you know, I mean, the script was brilliant. It had brilliant ideas. It, it, it felt fresh. It was uh, shocking and uh, interesting. And, you know, I think that we, you know, we, we made the most of something which couldn't be perfected. We didn't know how to perfect it, but I think we did a good enough job that we saved it and improved it just enough so that, you know, whatever it was that was bothering people didn't bother them so much that they couldn't enjoy it. I mean, it was a little bit like Total Recall, also in the sense that it was, you know, it was a story within a story, and she, was, she, was, she had written the book to be the alibi for the crime. Did, did that mean she was uh, guilty or innocent? Uh, and, and then the other part, which most people don't talk about, is that she was one of the first fully empowered women on screen, she really was like a man. She could do anything. She used men. She could get away with crimes. She was, you know, she she was, a, I mean, actually, there haven't been a lot of women like that otherwise. I mean, she wasn't really being seductive. She was really being powerful. And that was part of, you know, and beautiful and, and having her, you know, the, the, the beauty and the sex at her disposal. And I think that was, uh, I think it, people just, without recognizing that that's what they were watching... They recognized that it was something new. That performance
0: uh, by Sharon Stone was just such a career-making performance. It must have been interesting to witness that.
4: Yes. Sharon, you know, had done. A, we, we really liked what she had done on Total Recall and, uh, and felt that, you know, she was perfect for the part from the beginning and she was one of the very first actors who were, you know, who did a screen test. And we looked, all looked at the screen test and went, wow, she's great, but she's not a big star. And since this was, you know, going to be, a, you know, this is a huge, you know, the biggest screenplay sale in history, right? You know, we want, you know, the idea is that you, get, you get a huge star, and then one by one, you know, Paul and the studio submitted it to all the big female stars, and they all turned them down. And then ultimately, you know, there might have been, you know, some not huge stars who might have been interested, but we said, let's go with Sharon. Sharon is great. We we liked her. We liked her test at the beginning, and she's defeated all all competitors. Paul uh, Paul insisted on Sharon, and uh, and she was great.
0: Can you tell me what's coming up next for you? As far as is it is it Crusade happens, or do you start working on the Total Recall two script? What's the timeline for those two things? Crusade comes next. Crusade is one of the best scripts I've ever read.
4: Yeah, it's a good script, and and you know I mean basically this was an original screenplay by Waylon Green. Was a great writer. Paul had that script, and he had kind of turned against it. He, you know, he said, "I don't know. I like it, but I don't like it anymore." What do you think? And I said, "You know, I thought I think it's really great." He thought I was really mistaken. But in any case, I worked with him on for a while, and we got it to the point where he, you know, he liked it again. But he also, you know, I think we got it to the point where we realized that it had always been good. He realized that it had always been good, <laughs> and that, uh, you know, and that we just, you know, we we made we tried to make it somewhat better. In any case. You know, and it was, it was supposed to get made. They were, it, it had been budgeted, and it was on its way to getting made. But there were, it was just too expensive, and the studio stepped back from it. It was a casualty of the fact that Paul Verhoeven is, is a very, very honest person. He, you know, he's Dutch, and he's forthright. And he didn't play the games of, you know, pretending that he could do it cheaper. I think that rather than trusting that when he gave, you know, I mean, in the end, he I, I probably, you know, he would have been a hit. And he should have probably done what he, you know, I mean, that Toronto didn't make it. Instead, they made Cutthroat Island, which probably ended up costing them as much as, or more than Crusade would have made it, it you know, would have cost them. But uh, in any case, you know, there was a certain moment when a decision needed to be made. And Paul, instead of saying, well, I can cut this and I can cut that, or no, no, I'll, you know, you're, you're telling me to do this, you know, can, can you shoot this for this much instead of, you know, this for $10 million less? And instead of just saying, yes, I can, he said, you know, no, I'm not going to lie to you. And so that was <laughs> in Hollywood. You have to, you know, really for things to get done, it, people don't have the courage to make these tough decisions. They need to be lied to. I, I'm not a liar, and, and, and I'm not usually not in the position of telling people, you know, you know, ha- having to lie. There are other people who have to, who are called upon to do that. But you know, very frequently, you know, nobody, you know, n- no big venture would get made like uh, Suez Canal or Panama Canal or anything like that. If people really knew a war, if people knew how much it was going to end up costing. You know they they only get done when if somebody lies at the beginning, Paul didn't do that, and so the movie didn't get made
0: so what happens to you when the project falls apart?
4: I was a script doctor on that picture you know I was a script doctor on basic instinct, and I was a script doctor on um on crusade and that's that's a fine and noble profession and very well paid uh, you know but you know it didn't it didn't i mean what happened to me honestly, there were two or three things I had in the fire when corolko ended up going bankrupt. I could think one of them was a total recall sequel and the other was a crusade. You know, if, if Caraco had made those two movies, they would probably still be in business. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, I would have been launched to, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I have a certain stature. If those two movies had been made, I would have been a lot bigger. So yeah, I look back on that, at that crucial moment and I, you know, I go, wow, if only, you know, if only they had made, you know, they, they, they could easily have made those two decisions. Also, Paul did Showgirls, so it was it was he did Paul, Paul and between Paul and Kowalko, instead of doing Crusade and Minority Report, they did uh, Cutthroat Island and Showgirls, and there the tale was told.
0: When did you first become exposed to Philip K. Dick? Was it through your work on Total Recall? Two answers to that question. Yes, it was through my
4: work on Total Recall. But also, I I realized that also I had had one of the one of the the friends I had who. Uh, I had been involved in the distribution company with. He was a big Philip K. Dick fan, and he was talking about Philip K. Dick, you know, years ago, and he ended up actually even, you know, I mean, he's he, he retained his interest in Philip K. Dick and has tried to mount certain Philip K. Dick projects. Um, and I realized many years later, oh, that's the guy he was telling me about who was so wonderful. But I, you know, what happened is that when, when, when Total Recall was offered to me and I started working on it and reading Philip K. Dick, I didn't put those two things together. So for all practical purposes, yes, uh, I was exposed to Philip K. Dick starting with Total Recall. I hadn't read anything of his before that.
0: So in a movie that is basically supposed to be a dream, or you can interpret it that way, and I think a lot of people do, how are you going to pull Quaid out in... Put him into Minority Report, basically, with a sequel.
4: There were we did it two ways. You know, we did later. We uh, Ron, said, and I actually did write a Total Recall sequel. And in, um, yeah, when we did Minority Report, um, we decided that he that it wouldn't. You know, we would since it was teetering on the brink of it could be a dream or it could be reality. We would say that it was reality. You know, and just make that decision at the beginning of um, of you know Minority Report as a as the total recall sequel and then on the other hand when we wrote an original total recall sequel for uh dimension we decided to you know we, we continued the amb- ambiguity and, and kept playing it out and you know and, I, and it was uh, and that was really an interesting you know screenplay um and that, that could have been a good movie too that and it, and it didn't get made
0: so what was the history with that when did you get offered this or did you and ron start working together on the sequel idea what was that
4: well, okay, so Ron and I liked each other. At a certain point, I got the, I was still working, I was under, you know, I had an overall deal at Carolco. I'd worked with, you know, been working with Paul on um, Basic Instinct and Crusade. And I came across, someone showed me, told me about the Minority Report short story. And I thought, oh, this is great, and I, and I optioned it. And I wanted to make it as a smaller film that I would write and direct. So I went to Paul to see if he would, you know, be my executive producer and vouch for me. And he said, "Yeah, sure. I you know, that's a really good story. I'd be happy to do that. You know, but let me ask you do, you: do you, you know, what do you think about doing it as a total recall sequel?" And I, you know, and at the time, I, I said to Paul, "Well, I thought you didn't want to do any sequels." And he says, "Well, I didn't, but you know, I think this would make a really good sequel because it has the same feeling to it without having to actually be the same story again." And you know, just to take a step back, you know, in those days. A lot of big directors didn't do sequels. Doing a sequel was equivalent to, like, you know, going commercial, being commercial and selling out. Because, you know, and cause sequels at that time rarely made as much as the originals, and they were considered to be not as good. And, you know, so a self-respecting an artist, a, a, a director who considered himself an artist would, would, would have been reluctant to do a sequel. I mean, least Scott didn't do the sequel to Alien, right? You know, they got a new director to Cameron to do it. Paul decided that he wanted to do, he would be happy to do... Um, minority Report as a total recall sequel, and I had to make this decision whether I would, you know, give it up because I thought it was like a very good opportunity for me to finally get to direct. Or it seemed like everything was lined up. I had Arnold and Paul and Carranco, when we everybody we were all flying high and friends, and it seemed like okay, this is going to be so easy. You know, we'll just write this, go ahead and make it, make a lot of money, and then you know I'll be hotter than I hotter than I am now, which at that time was pretty hot. And and I'll be able to direct something else. It won't be a problem. But when it became a Total Recall sequel, uh, Ron set came back into it. Because Ron, in his contract, had the right to write any sequels to Total Recall. And so I thought, no problem. Ron and I worked well together. You know, if Ron and I, you know, if she's happy to work on it together, we'll just keep, you know, keep on like we were before. We'll pick up like we were on the set. We'll we'll write this together. It'll be a family affair. And so we worked with Ron on that, and he was he was cool with it. Uh, there were some additional complications involving the, um, uh, the you know a writer who had told me about the screenplay about the short story in the beginning, but uh, you know we we worked those out, and then we wrote a screenplay for Minority Report and a Total Recall sequel, and we were in a race with Showgirls to get the script ready. And Paul was working with Joe Estherhaus on Showgirls. And, you know, the basic instinct had already been a hit. And he had a, you know, so now, he, you know, Paul, you know, he's, uh, you know, there's more than one writer in his life. So he has a good relationship with Joe, and they're red hot, and he's working on Showgirls. And so I, we, we rushed to finish our draft of uh, Total Recall 2 in time for Paul to make a decision of as to whether he wanted to do Showgirls or... Total Recall too, and he had problems with our draft of the screenplay and didn't you know and decided to go make showbills At that point, the project went into vacance. Paul wasn't available to you know he was off making movies. He was going to be a year before he'd even give us notes. He has a tendency to like get interested in something and then when he doesn't like a draft, you know, just sort of like shun it. You know, because he had done that with Crusade and then come back to it. But in the meantime, we felt that uh, it looked like Paul really wasn't interested in it at all. So. I threw Paul, a mutual friend of Paul's and mine who, who knew Jan Du and Jan Deontt was you know was Paul's cinematographer on many movies, including on Basic Instinct, and Jan had just done Speed, and I heard that speed was a um, you know, was going to be a hit. And so I showed him the screenplay that you know that well, Ron and I showed him the screenplay that we had done, and he, you know, he was interested in coming on on board as the director. And so that began the next phase of, of it. And uh, but Carolco was going out of business. They didn't want to hire Jan de Bont because they didn't make certain payments. The rights reverted to me, and then with, you know, and then together with, with my rights, my underlying rights to the short story. We were and, and to the screenplay, we we were able to reattach uh, uh, Arnold. And Arnold liked the idea at that point of working with Jan de Bont. and we set up the, the Minority Report, Total Recall sequel with Arnold and Jan. At 20th Century Fox. Do you remember what year that was? Well, I don't know. Let's see. The movie came out in ninety, right nineteen ninety. So I'm guessing this is maybe like nineteen ninety six by now, nineteen ninety five, probably nineteen ninety five, probably about ninety six. Yeah, and uh, you know, I had a friend who was an executive there, Susan Cartzloff, and so it was all, you know, it just all and, and, and Fox had been setting up, wanted to make an overall deal with Jan. so that we, you know, that was a very smooth transition, and then we continued to do two more drafts of the screenplay at the Century Fox for Jan and Arnold. After that, Jan, uh, there was some, inter, you know, politicking, you know, but you know, the, the studio and, and Jan were not entirely sure they wanted to, that they, they wanted to continue to make it as a total recall sequel. I think in fact, we, we, we rewrote it. We took out the total recall. and When we took out the total recall, they weren't so sure they wanted Arnold to be the star. And Ron and I were, taught, we're, we're, we're caught in the middle because we felt an allegiance both to Arnold and, Jan and the studio. And in the end, you know, Jan wanted to, okay, in the end, Jan wasn't ready to direct it. He didn't want to direct it or he had gone, he was going off to do this movie Speed 2. And in that time, you know, we said, well, you know, you guys might not like it, but you know, we really think this is a great screenplay. And you know, a lot of people like it very much. So we got it to Martin Campbell and Martin Campbell, I'm trying to remember what he was coming off of, but the next movie he ended up making was the Zorro movie. And he wanted to make our movie, you know, wanted to make Minority Report. But the studio couldn't come to terms with him or wasn't happy with it or John actually wanted to. I don't know. You know, i don't. the whole story I may still not know. They said that they couldn't come to terms with him, but it might have been they didn't, you know, they didn't think he was going to be good enough. I mean, you know, me and Martin Campbell, he had a big hit with Zorro, but, you know, he didn't go on to become really illustrious. So who knows? really, I mean, I'd say that it's not entirely clear how much of a genius filmmaker, director he is. But in any case, the studio did not make the deal with Martin Campbell. And instead, John de Bont and the studio went off and hired another writer. They hired John Cohn. And, and, and Ron and I were not involved in the project after that.
0: John Cohn, it seems like such an odd choice because as far as I know, he was more of a novelist than a screenwriter?
4: You know, I don't know much about him or, or his career. You know, um, my friend, uh, I don't know how they came by him. Uh, my friend who worked with Jan de bon, Randy Auerbach, she had excellent taste. She may have come across his work and felt that he, you know, either, either a novel or a screenplay, and felt that he would be good for it. And um, he, did, he wrote a pretty good screenplay.
0: So when do you hear that Now Minority Report is being made?
4: What happened was that Jan de bon liked the, the, the new draft, and he wanted to direct it. But they sent it around to a bunch of um, actors. And strangely, I mean, you know, just to show how you can run hot and cold after having two two hits, Jan had done Speed 2, which was a disaster. And now suddenly nobody, the big actors didn't want to work with him. So they couldn't, they couldn't get a star. Now, among the people they sent it to was Tom Cruise, and Tom Cruise had been wanting to make a science fiction movie with Steven Spielberg. And so he somehow managed to get it to Spielberg. but And then there there were also the negotiations, and maybe Spielberg wanted to do it, but then he had to come to terms with Jan because Jan wanted to direct it. And apparently there was a a big mega deal made where where Spielberg would give Jan a different movie to direct. I think it was The the Haunting, and Spielberg would instead direct Minority Report. And at that point, it was announced that uh, Minority Report was getting made with uh, Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg. And I read about it in the trades.
0: Big surprise for you, which is just like, hey, the movie I worked on for so many years is now getting made. Well, oh, it's not just that, but they didn't include Ron's name or mine in any of the
4: publicity. It was, you know, it was a Yon-de-Bond production, you know, with a screenplay by John Cohen, starring Tom Cruise and directed by Steven Spielberg. So it was about as it was the biggest movie you could have. The biggest director with the biggest star. And I worked on it for six years you know, and had the option material and gone through all these different, you know, I'd I'd really functioned very well as a producer, as well as a writer and, and, and Ron and my names are not mentioned.
0: So that, that, that was a very disappointing moment. So do you call up your agent and say like, Hey, I need something for this.
4: Yes, we did what we could, but you know, you know, Steven Spielberg is a giant and people don't want to disturb him. You know, they don't want to go to him. If he doesn't, you know, if he hasn't, decided to do something. They don't want to say, Hey, you ought to do something. Um, and besides which, you know, within the industry, he has a, there's an expression like uses up all the air in the room. And you know, that's at least at that time, that was one of the things, you know, like, you know, listen, you're not the only one when Spielberg does a movie. There are a lot of people who go, you know, who don't, who feel, he, he takes all the credit and puts all his own people in it. And, and they're the ones who get it. And, you know, it, it isn't unusual for people to feel bruised and pushed aside. So um, there really wasn't anything anybody could do to help me.
0: But yeah, you end up as an executive producer credit.
4: And that was in a part because of the fact that, um, you, know, the, you know, there was a, a credit arbitration. According to the rules of the, of the Writers Guild at the time, uh, there was a strong prejudice against people, against producers, and uh, what they called production executives, getting credit on movies. Because these are people, either they're the director, the producer, or a studio executive, who have the power to allow themselves to do the writing and they can do whatever they want. And so the guild indicated that for those people to get credit on the movie, they have to do more than the normal. So if it takes 33% to, um, if you have to contribute 33% to, to get any, to get shared credit on a, on a movie under ordinary circumstances, if you're the producer or production executive on the movie, then you have to contribute 50%. And if you're a writing team, you may actually need to contribute 60, two, two-thirds before you get credit. Ultimately, in the end, you know, there was just, you know, because we, we could have renounced our producer credit and then gone in as pure writers, although I don't know why because in any case, but in any case, we, we felt that we weren't ready to give up our producing credit on the you know, speculatively in order to enter a negotiate, an arbitration on the writing credit. And in, and in the end, we didn't, we, we, we didn't get any writing credit. So you know, my feeling is that you know John Cohen and Scott Frank certainly deserve their credit, and you know we deserve to be up there with them. But uh, that's not how that's not how it happened.
0: And while you are waiting for this thing to go, and you've got all these machinations with Jan DeBont and Arnold and all this stuff happening, obviously you're still working at the same time. You still have to be putting you know bread on the table. What kind of stuff are you working on? I did. I worked on Watchmen.
4: Yeah, you know, right after Sam Ham. I worked on Watchmen. I had been aware of Watchmen when it was in galleys and wanted to do it even then. Uh, and then I had a chance to work on Watchmen. And that was great. And I thought that, um, uh, I mean, I, I liked what I did on Watchmen. I mean, first of all, again, I, mean, I'm, I'm, I, I tend to be, uh, I, I, I respect what a lot of my fellow screenwriters do. I'm not trying to you know, diminish their work. I thought Sam Hamm wrote a great screenplay, and I was really surprised that he didn't get more credit on the film, because I thought that the movie looked very similar to, you know, the work he had done. I liked what he did, but I felt there were certain problems that needed to be fixed, and I felt that I had addressed them. And then when the movie came out, uh, they didn't use my solutions, and I felt that really a lot of the, you know, the, the basic problems that I was trying to address had not been addressed. You know, they were a little too faithful to the original material, and therefore they preserved some of the flaws that I felt that I had kind of finessed and um you know they they weren't large changes, but they, they might have really sort of like again, you know you got you, you have to you have to minimize the bad parts enough of it that, that it doesn't you know trip and, and stall before the finish line so uh that was I worked on Watchmen, I thought I did a good job, but you know they, they, it took an extra ten, twelve years i mean I mean there were many writers between me and the time that it finally got made, so it wasn't as if they were supposed to make mine it was uh, it was you know one of those projects that was endlessly in development. Um, I worked on, um, I did a little bit of, you know, a little bit of script doctrine very quick on um, Judge Dredd and Waterworld. You know, these are not things that I wanted to work on for a long time, but, you know, I was probably one of a roster of uncredited writers on those projects. Uh, I did an adaptation of Jules Verne's Mysterious Island. I did an adaptation of um, The End of Eternity by Isaac Asimov, which I... It was, a, it was a great project, and I thought I did a really good job on it. Surprised, you know, that didn't go anywhere. I did. I did an original screenplay called Stowaway, about um, a kind of a, the story of a of, of a guy who's, accidentally, ends up on an alien spaceship, and it was it was almost a one camera, you know, one person, one character piece that takes you on that horrible experience and really tries to make you feel it. And that it was before it was before Blair Witch and it was before Zemeckis did cast away. And, you know, but, you know, again, a project that I like a lot and I, I still don't understand why it hasn't gotten made. I worked on that. And that pretty much, you know, there might have been a few others here and there, but those are the, those are the things that I worked on in those intermediate years.
0: One thing that I did uh, know that I did want to ask you about was how you went about adapting the X-Men.
4: I had always loved comic books as a kid, and starting right after Big Trouble in Little China, I had identified that superhero movies would really be the right field, that special effects were becoming, I mean, I really, you know, the, the challenge was that you just couldn't put these things on, visually put them on screen, and so one of the things that I wanted to do early on was to try and use the Chinese martial arts wire work action, together with the early days of computer generated effects to try and get superhero movies on screen. Uh, and so I, you know, I, um, when I had my overall deal at Kowalko, I told Mario Casar that I wanted to do X-Men. And interestingly enough, you know, he fixed me up with um, Jim Cameron's company. And I worked with a the guy there who was running his company named Larry Kasanoff. And we went and we pitched Stan Lee on getting the rights to do X-Men. And it was really fun. And I pitched Stan and he liked my take and we got the right to do X-Men and uh, I was working on it at the same time as uh, I was working on Basic Instinct, and as Basic Instinct was getting shot. I actually liked the original X-Men the best, you know, I wanted to do something a little bit smaller that didn't, the small magic. And in the end, I think that Brian Singer ended up, you know, I-, I liked very much what he did with it in that first one, and I felt that I was, I was kind of on the, on, the, on the right wavelength there. Caronco ran into financial trouble, and it was time to renew the option. And by that time, uh, Jim Cameron, who we knew was involved, he was going to be the director, had decided that he wanted to go to work on Spider-Man instead. And and Carolco got the option for him to do Spider-Man. And then I guess they had uh, a limit of how much money they had, and they decided to let the option to X-Men go and to keep the option to Spider-Man. That's, that's what Cameron was more interested in. And as a result, and in the end, ultimately, there was a flaw in their contract, and and Cameron was ready to make a Spider-Man movie, but it ended up that he didn't have the rights. They lost the court battle over who actually had the rights to Spider-Man, and it went on to be you know I mean the franchise then started over again at twenty, yeah, twentieth century Fox, and uh, without Cameron. So he he didn't get to make his Spider-Man movie, and I didn't get to make my X-Men movie. And you know the rights those rights also went to was that also Fox. I think so. But that was that was a big blow because I really liked X Men and you know I would have been involved as a writer and executive producer on you know that whole franchise.
0: When you're uh, adapting the X Men, I mean, there's been so many iterations of them. Are you going all the way back to the original, you know, Iceman, Angel, Beast kind of X Men, or?
4: Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, no, no, not entirely. I Kitty Pride, and a couple of others, but you know, but basically, I went I went back mainly to the original ones. I, I just related to them better and I and also I was I, I like the idea of, you know, the, the more the, the more realistic and small it could be, it seemed to me at that time. I mean, this was before you you know, when the, the capabilities of of uh, computer effects skyrocketed, you know, and it's been exponential. And so I, when I was working on it, it really still would have been, you know, a struggle to get it on screen. And it still required part of the art of writing this that kind of movie then was to find ways to write your story so that you could then sell it with a special effect that you were capable of making. You know, you couldn't just do anything you wanted and then hand it over. You had to work with, you know, you know it had to be good drama and then there had to be a particular effect that you could pull off. And, and, and I felt that by keeping it small and more very much about, I mean, from the beginning, I had also started to do, you know, try and create my own comic book uh, universe for different projects rather than just optioning preexisting ones. And all of them were about real people who have, you know, who acquire superpowers. And, and I, I was attracted to the, to the realistic tone uh, of trying to make you really believe it. You know, so we come across more like science fiction and comic book. And so I was, I was, I, I my, my, my idea for x at that time was to truly try and make it believe that these are adolescents who had these problems You know, and we're at this school, and and I felt I think Brian Singer actually did a pretty good job with that. I mean, by the time he did it, there was there was more you could do, special effects wise. But uh, I felt that his basic approach was to try and be small and to try and be personal, and to try and you know show how when when you're hanging around the house how you use your powers to play basketball and stuff like that.
0: So the credited screenwriter for Total Recall, executive producer of Minority Report. How does next come about? How do you make the decision, now I'm going to be the Philip K. Dick guy?
4: Oh, okay. Well, after Minority Report, you know, I, I, I mean, I first I loved I love Philip K. Dick's work, and I was continually screening, you know, reading it, trying to find more and more of them to do. Uh, and so the one that I wanted to do after Minority Report was actually Paycheck. And so I had isolated that, and I actually was a negotiation sport. I think paycheck had been controlled by somebody for a number of years, and and the, and the rights were becoming available, and I was lying in wait for it. But apparently, other people knew about it, and they were also lying in wait for it. I got in touch with um, the you know the, the agent for the estate, and I offered them you know I, I, I tried to option it, and I offered them a lot of money. You know, I mean, I, I realized that, I, and then I found out that I had competition from the guys who ended up. Get, ultimately getting it and setting it up at Paramount. So here I was on my own trying to set it up in, co- in competition with Paramount. So I offered them $55,000 of my own money, but they, you know, they didn't take it. Instead they went with Paramount. And I guess it was a smart decision for them because as opposed to most of these Philippi movies that take 10 years to get made, this one got made almost immediately. You know, they, you know, the, the writer Nolfi, right? George Nolfi. I think it was, he, he wrote it and then they made it right away with John Woo. And, and Affleck, and, you know, and it was fine. And, it, you know, it, it, it did okay. It didn't do great. Um, but I felt like, wow, you know, if if I have to set the whole thing up at a studio before I even get going, I mean, I, I wanted to try and... There, there were difficulties. So what what project was I going to do next? And I, I, I identified the Golden Man, which had also been controlled for a long time. You know, it wasn't the first time someone had tried to make that into a movie. Walter Hill... Had had the rights, and he was trying to make it, uh, and apparently hadn't been able to, right? Because it never, you know, never happened. But you know, and Walter Hill was a good writer, a great writer, and uh, and a good, very good director. And I wondered why he couldn't get it done. But you know, I was, I felt very confident that I was, you know, I was a, you know, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't the Philip K. Dick guy. I was, you know, I was, you know, I I knew my way around Philip K. Dick, and I figured that I, you know that I wasn't going to let that stop me. I saw something in it that I really wanted to do, uh, having to do with the manipulation of time. Um, and so I tried to pitch it and set it up, and I wasn't able to do that. Oh, and So I, I ended up getting the rights through a very unusual way. I was interviewed about a minority report by a young man named Jason Kornick, who had started philipkdick.com. And in return, and the Philip K. Dick estate, the family, had said, you know, we want to actually have a website. Why don't we buy your website, and we'll take it over and make it the official Philip K. Dick website. And he said, okay. And he made a deal with him that part of his payment was that he would be able to get the rights to a uh, short story of his choice, or to a short story. And so when he told me that, I said, well, listen, let me, you know, if you, if you want to work together, you know, let me help you pick the right short story, and then we'll, you know, you'll get the rights, and then we'll proceed from there. And so we made, it, we made, it, we made it a, an agreement, and I told him that I thought the one, you know, the, 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 the story to get was Golden Man. Um, and so we then went around and came up with a take and pitched it, which we couldn't sell. Uh, and so I sat down and I wrote it on spec and, you know, it was difficult because, you know, I knew that there was, there was, um, a, a version that Walter Hill had made and I didn't want to see it, you know, because just for copyright reasons, it, it's just, you, know, you just, you know, I, I just didn't want to expose myself to it and, and, and open myself up to the possibility that I might be influenced by it. So then I, I came up with an, another take which is the one that I pitched, I pitched it to him a number of places and nobody bit. I think at that point it still had to do with he was a very good-looking guy. You know, do, you, do you know
0: the short story? It's been a long time since I've read it. I just mostly remember you know the golden skin and everything. And I think everybody tends to fall in love with him. Is that right? Yes. Yes,
4: he was gorgeous. And, and, and part of his superpower, he really had two superpowers. One was that he could see into the future instinctively. Just in the same way that you and I can like just look ahead in space, and the other was that he had a sort of um, a procreative advantage that you know women of our species just fell in love with him because he was so gorgeous, and so he was going to be the future of the of our species because his his genes would end up. He couldn't be caught. He would end up screwing his way through through humanity, and ultimately his genes would you know, the genes his genes and his offspring would drive us out, and and this is how the so it was a mutant story. It was really a story from around 1953 that was a precursor for the X-Men. I and mean, that was really, you know, the idea that it's after a war and there are mutants and people are hunting mutants. And so I figured, you know, what you can't, X-Men has already used that up. And so I didn't want to do it as an X-Men story. So I decided that I would try and make it contemporary. And then ultimately, you know, the, I I ended up just focusing on the the, the character of someone who could see into the the future and, and playing with it in terms of um, time, a little bit like Groundhog Day, but I wanted to make it really a kind of editing spectacular and to uh, and find ways to show, to have things repeat on screen in a rhythmic way to try and convey what, it, what his experience of the world was like. And there was one sequence in it where he escapes from a prison where he's being held where he's able to see all the different times simultaneously. And I thought, this is just so brilliant. So, you know, I I just want to find a way to put this on screen. And so I I really, you know, maybe I I jettisoned 75% of the story and focused just on, you know, and rebuilt it from the things that I thought were that interested me the most and that were still fresh and had never been done. And, uh, yeah, and so I did that. It it wasn't easy. And, uh, you know, and, and including not making the guy so beautiful because it seemed to me that that takes over the, that takes over. And it was actually extraneous. And, 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 if the whole movie was about it, I mean, I know that people love the short story and they said, Oh, this is great. We're going to have our, our star, the most beautiful actor in Hollywood. But you know, it struck me that that, that, that every movie has the most beautiful actor in Hollywood. In other words, you don't need a, you don't need to have a movie which is about the most beautiful person in the world in order to want to cast the most beautiful actor in it. I mean, in a sense that happens every time you make Hollywood makes a movie it's cast by a super powered person who is who's superhumanly good looking. But that wasn't that that, that was that was a, a trap that you could fall into that wouldn't help the movie. And so I kind of I I, I, I gave that up. I mean if we'd gotten somebody besides Nicolas Cage, that would have been fine. But I didn't I didn't write it that, that was that was what was driving the story was that he was so beautiful and, and women were making bad decisions because of it. And I think ultimately it was a you know, that was actually was a really good decision. Uh I I just wish the movie had been a little you know I mean everybody loved that screenplay. And um it, it, it did not quite get realized the way I would have liked.
0: I remember liking the movie. It wasn't Minority Report, it wasn't Total Recall, unfortunately.
4: Yeah, no, it was I mean it was a huge sale. It was you know, it was one of the biggest sales ever and people loved it when I sold it to Joe Roth's company, um, he said, "We want to make next our next movie." It was like great, you know. I wrote it, sell it, and they want to make it immediately. and We had Nicholas Cage. I had attached Jason Cornick, and I had attached Nicholas Cage, and Nicholas Cage had helped set it up. Set it up uh, with the studio with Joe Roth, but in the end, you know, the director, the star wasn't available. he wanted to do something first in time, and people they started spending the you know all their intermediate time rewriting it, and then it changed somewhat. Also, this was right around nine eleven, and so there was a real political undertone that people didn't. You know, we the idea was, you know, wow, anything can happen. You know, the, the disaster can strike out of the blue, and so the idea that someone could see into the future at that moment it had to, he had to be used to foresee terrorist events, right? I mean, that's just where where our minds were, and the, and the, and so the question was, and he, you know, I said he's a guy who he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to help anybody. He doesn't want to look into the future. And actually his powers are quite limited. He spends most of his time trying not to be used by the government. But, you know, there was a huge political debate going on as to whether or not, you know, whether, you know, the, the people's civil liberties were being abused in order not to take the chance of suffering another attack. There are there a lot of what I like to do is to play with audience expectations of what they, you know, most Hollywood movies, most movies are conventional. You know, and they and they, the the studios are not interested in challenging you on that level of your moral assumptions, which means that that's one of the few opportunities available for surprising audiences is not to not to make the, the assumptions that they assume you're making. So that's really you know that's how I'm and I'm very much interested in not in not doing the same you know not being typical. So I find that that's really you know that, that kind of became my stop on was to you know to, just define the underlying assumptions and play with them so that people could genuinely you know you, you could you could spin the story in ways that people didn't expect
0: what was your involvement if any on the total recall remake? Oh I had none no they you know they
4: just decided to remake it and, um, and neither Ron nor I had anything to do with it and that's to- that's you know
0: very typical. Have you been tapped at all for the uh, big trouble in Little China remake?
4: Well, first of all, interestingly, in our in our contract, we had the right to do the remake, to write the screenplay for the remake, and, um, and you know, listen, I understand that you know the studio they they made the movie once. Now it's thirty years later; they want to get some you know get a, a new and different approach to it. So they had to you know. So uh, we had nothing to do with it creatively, but we did need to come to terms with the studio before they could go ahead and and uh,
0: remake it without us. So at least you're not seeing it in the trades and going, oh, that's my movie. <laughs> well, actually,
4: no, no. I think that actually that's what would have happened if we hadn't called it and said, oh, by the way, you know, there's this back." I mean, that would be, I would, I would love to see Big Trouble in Little China remade. I mean, it's, uh, that would be fantastic.
0: So what are you working on these days? I have
4: two limited series that I'm working on. Um, one of them... It's you know it's, I I can't really talk about them because they're very conceptual, um, you know. But one of them is a little bit like science fiction, and yet it also has a hip hop musical element to it. But it's not it's not typically a musical. It just you know it's uh it's it it's, uh, it, it takes place in a kind of you know in, in a in a world where um, both science fiction and hip hop exist. <laughs> uh, and so that's you know I'm going to start. Um, you know, I've been working on that with a spoken word poet for a while, and we're getting ready to go out with it. And then, you know, I have um, something else, which is totally, you know, in a different area. It's a um, it's a historical miniseries set in the in World War II and the Nazi era, and it's about a kind of a, a figure who's an American, kind of American Schindler. He's uh, an American diplomat who from 1933 to 45 was trying to get the U.S. government to expand its immigration quota to let in, to let in, more, refu- to let in more refugees. And he was the, the chairman of um, the President's Advisory Committee on Refugees. And so he was uh, involved in a, in a battle with the State Department to get Franklin Roosevelt to try and let in more immigrants and refugees. And uh, so the whole period, and, and you know, it, it gets you into the, the America First movement with Lindbergh, and then the you know the, the, the conduct of the war and the Holocaust, and all that. From but it, but it's from the point of view, it's kind of um, the House of Cards version of it. You know, it's 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 it's, it's an American political story about all these events um, that we're familiar with, but that have never been seen from this angle before.
0: So, are you finding that television is? As I've I've talked with many writers before, they say that television is becoming more the writer's medium.
4: Yes, well, I mean, there's just a lot. First of all, um, yes, nowadays it, uh, it's more the writer's medium, and there's more opportunity there. Film, feature films have, sh- have shrunk, and TV has expanded.
0: Have you written in other uh, media? Have you written books? No, mainly I've, been, I've just I've been a screenwriter.
4: It'll be interesting. I at mean, at this point I took a little time off I did a lot of research for my historical project. But I would like to return to science fiction after this. And I have a couple of ideas left, you know, the fairly uh, ambitious science fiction original works that um, you know, I think you know, in first take the take the genre on an area that hasn't been before. Not entirely new. It's not unprecedented, but I've had, it's an idea I've had for a number of years. Still, no, nobody else has done it yet, so I might, you know, I might. It's, it's still there for me to do.
0: You don't know how much I'm busting to ask you more questions about that, but I know you can't really talk about it. No, I can't. I can't. Because I, I mean, you know, you've you've been right on the money with a lot of stuff. So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do next.
4: Well, thanks. Well, you know, I can tell you that I wrote a screen, but it didn't sell. Uh, right, you know, I wrote a I, I optioned, the, I got the rights to Variable Man, another Philip K. Dick novella, and I, I worked on it with a young partner. I thought, okay, this would be interesting to me. You know, um, named uh, Angus Fletcher, and I thought, and it, we, and, and and again, it was one of these things. It's very, you know, I mean, the reason why you don't have a, a new Philip K. Dick movie every year is that it's very hard to figure out what to do with them. They're all interesting, but they don't necessarily make movies, and. Really, you need two things. You need the idea from Philip K. Dick, and then you need a take. And a take is, if you have the take, then suddenly you can activate, you can get the project going. But you can't get the project going without the take. So I had a very, you know, I, I actually had an original idea, and I kind of merged it with Variable Man. And it was before her, you know, and it was about, it was about um, you know, a kind of a, a moment of singularity, which was woven into the Philip Dick story, because, you know, I felt like, you know, Dick had been prescient 40 years ago, 50 years ago, but, you know, it needed to be freshened up. And so it was really about the surrender, our surrender of free will to computers who knew better than us. And you wouldn't, I mean, I mean, in other words, every time you had a choice to do what you think is right and what the computer would tell you was best for you. If you, you know, if you listen to the computer, you were fine. And if you did what you thought was right, you know, the chances of being fine were a lot less. And I think that's really where we're headed. But what it means is that if you stop making your own decisions, are you really a human being or are you just, you know, a robot taking orders from a, an artificial intelligence? So it was a very philosophical work. And it was kind of funny, too. And it was, a, um, you know, because it was, the, it was before her and it was before um, um, Alexa or Siri but I had sort of foreseen that and I had invented a character uh, and it's in, in the hero and you're not sure if this character is a, is a hero or a villain and he's, you know, he's claiming to he, he's, he's trying to get people to do things to kill people for a good cause he says and it's about how does a person how does the human being know what to do when they're being manipulated by something a hundred million times smarter than we are but I would like to rewrite that and put it out on the market again. <laughs> that's one of the things I would like to do next problem was that I was having to shove in, I mean, all these, everything that I thought was interesting about it was happening between people and in interesting situations, And it wasn't about spectacular special effects. So I was having to shove in the special effects and I thought, well, you know, maybe next time I'll make, you know, I'll rewrite it and and, and it'll be, you know, and it'll be for Seth Rogen, you know, and it's Seth Rogen having to figure out whether, you know, he's the last guy who's trying to make up his own mind. And of course he's always wrong. (laughs) <laughs> but, but, that, but that doesn't mean he can he can, he can give up and just do what the machine says, right? I mean, even if you know you're wrong, you, you, I mean, listen, isn't that the situation we're always in? People are always telling us what to do, and we're still stupid enough to do what we think is right. I mean, what, you know, we're, making, we're making decisions for ourselves. And some people are pretty wise and make pretty good decisions, and some people you know, make stupid decisions, and they, you know, they still insist on making decisions for themselves so I think it's something everyone will identify with. It's just that all of us at this point will have been rendered a lot stupider than we would like to, you know. <laughs> and we're, but, but we all have pride, and we don't want to admit that we don't know what we're talking about. But on the other hand, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know the answer to that question of what's the, thing the right thing to do. I mean, that's, I think that's what's interesting about writing, that, writing the story, is that you don't know what the right thing to do is, and the audience doesn't know what the right thing to do is. All the audience knows is, like what it thinks it might do or what it thinks it would like a hero to do. And you're really, and it takes into a, a kind of decision-making place that they haven't been before.
0: Gary, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for all this time you've given me.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure, Mike.
0: Should not be. What do you know about this recall place? Stay away from them. What mess with your mind, man?
3: Welcome to recall. First time.
1: Tell us your fantasy. We'll give you the memory. You wanna be a crime fighter? Or world-class athlete? or secret agent. Yeah.
0: Happy trails, man. What is it? What's wrong? Yank that needle
3: out before it takes. Why are you here? Oh, oh, why? No, oh, please. Oh, it's wait, 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 wait. all a mistake. Nobody.
2: Hands on your
4: head, man. No. You're trying to kill me.
3: Your memory was erased. Your mind was implanted with a life you think you've lived.
4: Oh, and by the way, you haven't even begun
2: to see me trying to kill you.
3: Get in. I'm looking for you everywhere.
4: reliable of memories
1: to
2: you
0: all right we are back and we're talking about total recall i mentioned before the whole idea of the uh the sequel to this film and we'll talk about this a little bit more next week when we talk about minority report to me a sequel to this doesn't necessarily work because of that idea that we discussed earlier as far as is this all a dream? You know, we have so many clues, blue skies on Mars. We've got the picture of Melina. We've got just all of these different things that are setting us up to believe pretty much by the end of the film, that this could be a dream. And I like Rachel's line or why do I keep calling her Rachel? I like Melina's line of, uh, you know, hurry, kiss me quick before you wake up. And that it's not, we wake up as you, you know, this is your dream. There have been these attempts to do sequels to this, and I even just read a comic book. It was actually a pretty good comic, and it was, uh, picks up pretty much, I'm not sure how much time takes place bef- between the movie and it. But it was pretty good, and they actually introduced the Martians, and there are more machines that uh, trigger off different things and all this kind of stuff. But they had to bring back the Richter character, and Richter had these metal arms, and he's (laughs) fighting Quaid with metal arms. And I was just like, really? Between those arms getting ripped off and that fall, I just don't see Richter surviving the first movie. Yeah, no. He shows up in Starship Troopers, though. And he's got the metal arms there, so... It's funny that you go, why did I just say Rachel? And I'll tell you why
1: you said Rachel. Because this remake looks like Blade Runner. (laughs) It is so much Blade Runner. Oh, it's like Blade Runner Lite. It's like Diet Blade Runner. I don't know. I don't know how exactly to explain it.
0: All the texture bled out of it. It's taking... That washed-out look that Spielberg does for Minority Report, and then going even farther, and then taking all of the lens flares from the uh, Star Trek reboot and putting those in here, the lens flares were hurting my eyes by watching this movie.
1: See, you always bring up lens flares. I don't know, maybe I'm not susceptible to them, but I don't even have a tendency to notice them half the time.
0: Oh, it, they are everywhere. I mean, it's it's so washed out. It's just unbelievable. It is
1: very dark. That was one of the things that I wrote, is that it's so dark that sometimes some of the action scenes, I can't quite make out what's going on. The other thing with this remake, I wish that I saw the theatrical version. I think I ended up seeing the director's cut, which it it felt too long. It felt like it needed to be trimmed by at least 20 minutes.
0: Which I think is what they put back into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I saw both versions, but my most recent viewing was that director's cut where they actually use Ethan Hawke as the previous version of Macla- of Quaid. Okay, yeah, it was kind of nice to see Ethan Hawke, but who cares? It would have been more effective if it had been... Colin Farrell talking to himself, I think, because we just talked about the whole idea of the doppelganger and how unsettling that is. So when you have someone with a completely different face saying, yeah, I'm you, it's so much easier for me to be like, I don't believe you. You look like Ethan Hawke. I look like Colin Farrell. Huge bit of difference. Sorry about it.
2: I don't remember much about the movie at all. I I don't think I was particularly... Irritated watching it, like eh, it's it's fine. I'm I'm getting through it, but but with both of those remakes of of Verhoeven movies that came out back to back, Total Recall and, and RoboCop, it's like why would you choose something so like? A, watching Total Recall again, it's like God, these colors are so pulpy and garish and they pop out and even though it's got that sort of, you know, the big concrete slab, new brutalism sort of look to it, it's it's also got these great colors and ridiculous looking costumes and things like that that, that stick out and make it fun but everything is so drab and gray and slick and zero personality I don't know why that is the choice you'd make too <laughs> to to do a Paul Verhoeven remake.
1: Another thing that it stole, and it feels like this is where the fall kind of looks like, and some of the other design elements in here, is it feels like Metropolis. It has, and it's not to say that other science fiction films over the years have borrowed from Metropolis. They definitely have. But this one feels much more like it. There's definitely a much more of a, workers versus the state of uh, kind of thing and the workers live underground and they have to get in this thing and they go to work and it's it's sort of a a more exotic way to do it it's not one shift shifting back and forth to get in as the gate goes up and comes down in metropolis and all of that stuff. But, but there's that. And then there, and instead of the Arnold scene where, Hey, I'm going to go to recall. Oh, recall, recall, recall with the, you know, the jackhammers that it's him and Bokeem Woodbine in there working in a factory building police robots. So to me, I'm like, Blade. they're, they're playing with robocop so oh we're building robocops or we're building the the next version of of that as opposed to being a cyborg it's they finally figured out how to take uh, the, the man out of the machine and that's what's handling the policing in this place
0: this movie feels a lot like a mashup you mentioned blade runner so it definitely has blade runner elements to it but it feels more like minority report and iRobot to me and it's like taking and i don't mind iRobot i can't say it's a good movie by any stretch of the imagination but it's like you take the bad parts of iRobot and put them into this movie i mean i just i i i mean spoiler alert i hate this movie it just it makes me so angry watching this that they it feels like they took all of the bad ideas that were in the original scripts, all the bad ideas that were in the sequel scripts and just mushed them into this. The whole idea of, uh, you're talking about the, the colony where the work gets done versus the United Federation of Britain where I guess the upper crust lives, but we don't really see how that goes and we don't, I can't tell which world that I'm in between one and the other. And that's a big difference. You know, I can tell when I'm on earth. I can tell when I'm on Mars. I can't tell when I'm on one side of the planet or the other side of the planet. And I just have to think to myself, did they go through that big? plot contrivance called the fall, which is going to obviously come back later on in the movie for me to have an action set piece here. Or did they not do that? I'm not really sure. And that they even like start combining characters just to streamline the film, but it just kind of makes it a little cheaper like the whole idea of the uh the the bulky woodbine character coming back in his dream as Dr. Edgemar. So there is no Dr. Edgemar and I have to say my wife thinks I'm crazy for this. But watching this movie, Jessica Biel and uh the director's wife Kate Beckinsale, they look almost identical to me in this movie because it's so hard to see anybody and they both have long brown hair. And they're both skinny ladies with, you know, relatively similar features to me. So I have no idea sometimes who I'm looking at.
1: I think that's the one thing that the first film did well was to put them in different hair colors. And obviously, one woman is a Latina and the other is very Aryan, you know, so you can tell the difference. The, the, the one thing that I found interesting in here was with the Kate Beckinsale character, they basically got rid of Richter and then combined Richter and her together into one character. Even like some of the fan service in here isn't done well. Like the two weeks thing. Of course, they've got to have the three breasted woman, but it's like, that's not all that interesting. And then, um, and then the chair, like, like I have a problem with the chair because the chair in here looks like an electric chair. It looks brutal as opposed to in the first film, it looks kind of like this it looks kind of cool and not scary in <laughs> this
0: looks scary
1: it looks like torture
0: and i guess because this is a len Wiseman movie we have to have bill Nye show up at some point and his character is completely wasted brian cranston i think he's more wasted in this movie than he was in godzilla and it's just like what are you doing in this movie brian cranston you show up on a screen again, talking about screens, and then you show up uh, towards the end, and that's about it. And I have no idea who you are. You are not threatening to me as this character at all. I've seen Bryan Cranston be threatening, but as his version of Cohagen, I just don't even know who this character is. Well, he could be very threatening.
1: Like, if they gave him more to do, he could just totally tap into that nasty Heisenberg-esque character. But he doesn't. He's just kind of there and it's flabby and it's not very interesting. Jed, are we picking
0: on your favorite film?
2: No, not at all. It just didn't it didn't make enough of an impression on me to have you know, again, the first one so much personality and in, in in every kind of aspect of it, from the costumes and the and the uh, performances to the special effects and the the themes and and the new one, like I said, it just kind of felt like a long car commercial. Just kind of didn't have much personality and was just slick enough to go. Oh, are they going to do anything interesting? Yeah, no, not really. You know, I had a couple decent fight scenes and and I liked the idea of the uh, the action sequence on the on the fall, but um, you know, I can't say it, it really paid off very well for me.
1: The problem I had, as I alluded to before the interview, is the exotic aspects of the
0: film. You're talking about how the use of the Asian as the other?
1: Yeah, and it's rather obvious when you go to the recall setup, because it moves from a clinical office setting in the first film. It looks like it might be a few doors down from the boardroom in RoboCop to... Basically, an opium den <laughs> is what they tried to do. It, it looks like they tried to tap into this oriental otherism, and he goes in there, and it's all very, and I'm using air quotes, Asian, and it's John Cho, as you said, who's the guy who's running the show on this and everything. Everyone is othered, and that's the only time we see them. We see them there and we see them on the street. Now I think people would say to me, but if they are ripping off Blade Runner, how is this any different than when Rooker Hauer's character goes to visit the guy who created his eyes? It's different. It really is. It's, it's, it, there, there's a much different manner in which that's handled. That is not handled in that uh, cliche of a manner as this is. It's, it's kind of shocking. And at the same time, like you were talking in the first film with black characters, there is this sort of the, the Asian characters, the black characters are really only there to support the white lead. They really don't have much else to do in this film.
0: The idea of the Asian setting of Los Angeles 2019, I mean, it made sense in the world of Blade Runner as far as, you know, we've seen San Francisco and that San Francisco has such a large Chinatown. This has moved to Los Angeles, but it makes sense that there is more of a Chinese presence being on the coast and everything. So that use of it, and I know it's Chinese and Japanese, you know, the, the geisha woman at the beginning that I mentioned before, that that Asianification of Los Angeles 2019 made a lot more sense than just this real, like, you know, they're using it like a little spice, like just, Being like, ooh, this is exotic, we're putting some Asian stuff in here, and again, I can't tell if I'm in the colony or if I'm in the other side of the world, so I know, you know, is this just kept to the darker side, and we're using, and I'm sure that it is. I'm sure that it's only the colony that has these Asian influences, because it is being used as a signifier to say, this is a den of inequity.
1: And that's really what I got, is that unlike in the first film, Recall lives in the straight world. It lives on Earth. It doesn't It doesn't live in the freak kingdom, per se, on Mars. In this film, Recall is right next to the prostitutes and everything else. So to me, I, it doesn't work as well there. Like, there's something wrong with having it there, Although people would say, well, it's, it's about escapism. So of course, the people who are the workers, those who are the underclass, they're the ones who are going to want the escapism more than, than the people that are living in the straight world who are living in the beautiful Britain, you know, as opposed to the colony. I'm, I'm not buying that argument. I, I feel that it actually works better for, It him to be in that world and then go to the colony as opposed to it being something that's created in the colony. And, but like I said, the minute he walked into that room, I was like, Oh man, no, don't do this. And it, it was really bad. And the only thing, like I said, the only thing I can equate it with is that he was trying to make some sort of leap between Asian Like opium dens, you know, and this—the idea of dream state or drug state via opium—and that's the same as this, and that, and then it's just another drug that these people are peddling. If if that's the case, then it's missing in the script, and he needed to be a little more emphatic. But it it just—it felt like, as you were saying, it was put in as let's do something spicy and exotic. Woo! Isn't this interesting? Which, to me, I find it creepier to be in an office setting. I think an office, a corporate office setting, is much more sinister than an opium drug den in some rundown part of town. But that's just me.
0: I'm not a big fan of either the writer or director of this film. Um, I know some people love equilibrium, but I always associate Kurt Vimmer, the writer of this with, uh, the other film that he directed, Ultraviolet, which to me is just a wretched film. Again, with a horrible look to it. It just looks like a, like a mushy cartoon. And then Len Wiseman, the king of shooting things way too dark with the underworld series. And then Live Free or Die Hard, one of I can't say one of the worst entries? Was that four or was that five? Because I know five was the worst one. Okay.
2: Atrocious.
0: Five was brutally awful, but four was still pretty darn bad. Then he did this, and then he's worked in television. It's just like, oh, This is, he really, we need to keep this guy away from cameras, what I think, because it's just like, you're not bringing anything new to this story whatsoever and everything that you're bringing to it that is, you know, anywhere near new is just a bad idea. The whole idea of these two colonies, rather than doing it on Mars, you know, and with Mars, you have the whole thing that we're talking about, this use, you know, use of the air and keeping the air away from people this what should be a natural resource i mean what hold does the united federation in britain have over the colony i can't really think of anything so it's like they're their own world down there i don't see what the bad things about the colony necessarily are and by the time we get to the question of is this reality or is a dream i just don't care anymore and i just don't care if these people ever wake up
1: yeah, I mean, my big note here was, this movie's really slow. Takes a long time to get there. Too talky. Chase scenes go on forever. Seem to lose their punch at a point, and it's dark. It's hard to see at times.
0: In the year 2070. Come to recall and to see- A corporation can manufacture your happiness if you're willing to pay the price. Go to Mars. Go Mars. The Recall Corporation manufacturing. Is it real or is it recall? Total Recall 2070, a new Showtime original series. Did either of you guys get a chance to see Total Recall 2070, the TV series? No, I don't know this. It was a Showtime TV series from 1999 and it was it is very very Canadian it was shot in Toronto and feels it feels very Canadian um and it's a weird amalgamation like I you know you mentioned how Total Recall 2012 was trying to capture more of the, the Blade Runner feel There is so much Blade Runner. I really think that they had the rights to the name Total Recall, but they were going more for a Blade Runner thing. Because there are replicants all throughout this whole thing. And as of the pilot episode, it was tough to pay attention to it. I will be completely honest, because it was boring as shit. But I don't remember any sort of recall stuff. Like There was mention of the corporation, but... There was nothing else. And when they reveal that one of the characters is a replicant, it's just like, yeah, uh, this guy's been acting robotic through the entire thing. Why am I the only one that gets this? <laughs> oh, so you're a replicant, eh? Take off, eh? What's a tortoise? It's not good. I don't necessarily recommend it. So I maybe it gets better in the other twenty one episodes or twenty episodes because I just watched the uh the two pilots that were originally a movie and then they split them up into part one and part two. It didn't really get it for me. I remember when it was announced, but I don't remember ever seeing anything for it and never watching it because
1: I didn't have cable.
0: Yeah, I can't I mean I would read you off some of the people that were in it, but you would not know any of the names. Like Kim Cotis is the bad guy in the first episode. Oh yeah. And that's the only person I recognized because I like him. That was about it. Everybody else was just like, "Yeah, I haven't seen you ever before in my life."
1: The thing about 2012 is two things. One, the the fall. For some reason, at one point, I got really bored watching it, and I go, "It kind of looks like shawarma," because I don't know around here. Like, you go to Middle Eastern restaurant, they got like the meat on a spigot, and you know, on a on a spit, and it just kind of turns. And um, I'm just like, "Yeah, shave some of that off. That'll be nice." And then um, you know, just odd notes that you have when you're bored watching a movie the other thing that this um falls for is is the joke that's highlighted by of all things austin powers is you know i'll just leave him to be killed by my henchman and expect everything to go according to plan what so like (laughs) that's kind of what brian cranston does at one point with colin farrell he's like "Eh, i gotta go and it's like why like just kill him already like "Ah, i gotta go So I was just like, so you fall for that old one, right? We're supposed to fall for that. Anyway.
2: Ronnie Cox at least got the line, you know. Hey, Doc, invite him to the party. Remind him. (laughs) Bring Melina along. That was good.
0: You're going to be Hauser's babe.
2: The one other thing about the uh, Verhoeven movie that um, it just made me laugh. I couldn't figure out. uh, Every time I watched it, I... It would come to this part, and I'd go, oh, God, I missed it. Why did this happen? But it, it seemed like such a, a strange uh, moment when uh, uh, the Johnny Cab tries to collect his fare, and he says, screw you, dickhead, or whatever, and then, then the Johnny Cab just gets really angry and blows up. It goes, ah! tries to run him over and blows up. I, I Do you know why Johnny Cab blew up? I don't remember that being
0: addressed. I don't know why Johnny Cab blew up, unless he was so angry about not getting his fare. (laughs) He was
2: so angry. He, he like, combusted internally. He glowed for a second. And tried to run him over and and blew
0: up. I love that whole weird relationship between Rob Bottin and Robert Picardo. And just like, if you know that Bottin is doing effects, that there's a good chance that Picardo is going to show up somehow, you know, like him in the howling or him as Johnny Cab, even doing the voice of Johnny Cab. And he just looks like a dead ringer for Picardo. I was
2: watching a uh, total recall, the Verhoeven version uh you know, a couple of times recently, it's, it, it really is tied together very nicely. He said, you know, Rachel Tycoden says to him, you know, if this is a dream, hurry up and kiss me before you wake up. And then if you start the movie immediately again, they're right back in the same place. He and Rachel Tycoden on top of a mountain. And then he wakes up from the dream. And, uh, and Sharon Stone says, Who is that woman? She's always, she's always in your dreams. He says, Yeah, but I'm always here in the morning with you. You know, I always, I always wake up and I'm here with it. so yeah. It's really, really tied together very nicely, bookend to bookend. I, I kind of wish it had started over and had him wake up screaming or something.
0: That would have been nice a little stinger scene at the end of this, Mister Quaid. We're putting together a team.
2: It's so nice, so nice that it doesn't have a sequel. I think uh, for as, as successful a film as it was, I'm I'm glad that it it doesn't because you're right I think choices made in a sequel really would have had to unless you go with completely different characters and just keep the recall institution and idea uh, you'd have had to make choices that you know hard, hard choices that define things for the, the first film that, that keep it nicely ambiguous and, and able to be read one way or another so I really appreciate that there's no, no official sequel out there
0: I forgot how successful this movie was until they were talking about on the audio commentary. And then looking it up, it looks like it was made for anywhere between 50 and 65 million, depending on who you ask. And then it made upwards of $260 million off of it. I forgot just how huge this movie was and that we still, you know, have resonance of it today. Obviously, they did a remake of it just a few years ago, but. Yeah, I kind of wish they wouldn't have, because I'm fine just remembering the original for wholesale.
1: Can we uh, talk a little bit about um rewatching it now? And I don't know if I've just been spoiled by uh, other movies, but when I look at the fact that they spent that much on it, I go, some of the sets look kind of cheap. <laughs> it just...
0: Yeah, some of the sets look bad. And then I, the only thing I don't like about this movie is just how bad that effect of the woman's head coming off of his head and that unreality of him looking. And it's just like, Oh man, I, I'm not a proponent of going back and doing an effect again digitally, but I kind of wish I could see just somebody do that as a test. So I could so, go, Oh, so it is possible.
1: Some of the special effects you're gonna be like, okay, it's 1990. They were limited. There's only so much they could do, but but that was the thing for me. Like some of the sets, like, oh my god, this looks cheap.
2: I I don't mind the cheap look. I think I think they've got personality. I think the decisions made in in the the effects they have personality. Even when you go, you know. 20, 30 years removed, you say, okay, they, they do that kind of thing better now, or slicker now, or whatever, It they still got personality that they just don't have in uh, uh, in many movies, certainly not movies of this scale today, I mean, you know, hold this up to a special effects extravaganza, like the Marvel stuff, and I enjoy the Marvel stuff fine, but my God, most of these effects are just... They don't have any personality to them. You don't. I don't remember any visuals from those movies uh, the way I do stuff like this. Uh, Total Recall is, is. I remember all of those effects. Man, pulling the pulling the bug out of his nose is brilliant. Uh, does it look realistic? Not exactly, but it's a it's a really effective effect. It got it so much. So much personality, and, and even the the woman you were saying, the the mask, uh, it's, yeah, not not exactly convincing, but I think it's got personality, and I, I like it a lot. I, I remember the way it looks quite a bit.
0: You're talking about him pulling the bug out of his nose makes me remember that. I don't think the Matrix movies, or let me just say the Matrix movie, would have been... Possible had this movie not been around. I mean, there are so many ideas that they play on in that, which are coming right from this playbook. You know, the bug, the whole questioning of reality, where you wake up, all of these kind of things. It's, uh, yeah, I, I like that this was bending reality in 1990 as effective, if not more effective, than something that would come 10 years later.
2: Sure, I think The Matrix borrowed as much from Tron as from, Philip K. Dick or William Gibson or, you know, whatever. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, The Matrix borrowed from all over. But, um, yeah, clearly watching it this time, especially that bug, I was like, ooh, that does look like the thing they
0: pull out of Neo's belly button. And that's one effect that I do like a lot is that rubber face of Arnold's when he's doing that That face and then the face when he's outside. He and Rachel and Cohagen are outside. I don't know if the science behind that is... 100%. I don't know if Neil deGrasse Tyson has stamped this movie with his approval, but, you know, I'm okay with how it goes.
2: I think they saw Outland and they said, oh yeah, that's what happens.
0: They can go back to normal, but Cohagen, he was out there for just way too long. Way too long. We never got to
2: see him pop. Was this movie trimmed to get an R rating?
0: It was definitely trimmed. You can see in that section where he rips the uh, recall machine apart, and he stabs that thing through Good the guy's neck face and, and the they head. Yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> I just go. Far. Yeah, that was trimmed,
2: and so much blood on the floor from all those shootouts and things. It's beautiful. I, I want movies to do that more.
0: To your point, Rob. I think had somebody tripped, they might have knocked over the entire Venusville set. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I I,
1: I love the small the small trains and and miniatures and you know yeah there's there's lots of lots of stuff in here to to love.
0: All right, guys, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
2: Look at me, positive for Howard Marks. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks and Donald Dubin. It was take place today, April 22nd. at 0800 hours and four minutes. No.
0: That's right. Our discussion of Philip K. Dick continues next week with a look at Minority Report. Until then, I want to thank this week's co host Rob and Jedidiah. Rob, what is the latest with you? I hear you have some very good news.
1: I finished a book.
0: Yeah, that's the good news I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, reading one. As anyone who has been a listener to the Projection Book knows, um, it's very hard for me to read books. No, I I finished writing one. I can't tell you what it is yet. It was a for hire project, so, but as soon as I can, I will let you know, and I think it may be of interest uh, to some fine folks out there in the universe, so so that's fun. Um, as for other projects I'm working on, as I've talked about before, the Detroit Punk History Project is still out there and ongoing. Um, there's supposed to be an update I was hoping to be able to tell you now in relation to Film Threat. Um, can't tell you anything new about that yet. Um. But, yeah, I'm I'm plugging away. I'm doing my thing and enjoying life here in fabulous uh, Detroit. And um, totally unrelated to the fact that we were watching this uh, and talking about this, I've been uh, watching The Man in the High Castle. So I don't know. It's like Philip K. Dick all over the place.
0: I just went and watched some of the Electric Dreams series. I tried to watch that. It's on Amazon Prime as well. Tried to watch that two years ago, and I caught some real clunker episodes. And then the one that was the first episode of this season that has, or the first season that has Anna Peckwin and Terrence Howard in it, and it is so Total Recall. It's not even funny. It's like, whose reality is the real reality? And they're going back and forth between the realities. And then at one point, I said to my wife, oh, I think he just had a schizoid embolism. And how about you, Jed? Anything exciting going on? And if not, please make up something.
2: Every time I say there's something, uh, that projects fall apart. So I'd rather not say anything.
0: Well, where can people go to read your stuff? You still do your blog, and you're still spelling. It, you're still selling your uh, your book out there. Uh, actually,
2: I just got. Uh, uh, no, I don't think the book's going to be in print much longer, and um, I don't know if anybody can do that. And I'm barely writing on the blog. Come see me on Twitter. Make sure I'm alive.
0: Well, make sure that a refrigerator hasn't fallen on top of you. <laughs> Please do. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Don't you mean Mars? Yeah, and Mars, too. Don't
3: you understand... I want to do something with my life. I want to be somebody. Here I am, same routine, hairy from work, beautiful wife. I know they mean well, but sometimes I feel like I'm crushed by this boring, repetitive life.
0: Every night I
3: go dreaming And the skies are red On another planet Then I wake up, I'm in bed But the brunette on the mountain I can still see her face It's as if she's a memory That's been long since erased. Yes, I'd leave them behind and aim for the farthest star. I'll find out who I am by climbing the mountains of Mars. But instead I watched the news, and it looked so exciting. The rebellion on Mars. All this shooting and fighting I try to be a good sport and I try to be patient but that company recall with the phony vacations I'd fork over the fee and aim for the farthest star So a trip to the planet Where Tobinium flows The mysterious woman And the secret she knows A family man, God, what a bore! But I'm hoping that something's in store I have to find out what I'm for Cause I know that I'm meant to be more Like a Superman Yes, I'd leave them behind and aim for the farthest star. I'll find out who I am by climbing the mountains of Mars.